We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Calm Versations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calm Versant is Cat Girl Kulak, who's not a cat, nor a girl, nor a Kulak, but rather a Canadian libertarian who writes blog posts and posts them on Twitter as threads and then also on Substack. And I find his output to be very fascinating and upsetting to conventional narratives. I think he would fit among the dissident right wing sphere, but that sphere is very diverse. Unlike the people who champion diversity, the actual intellectual diversity I find to be in the shadows of the diversity, equity, and inclusion regime. And in this calm conversation, myself and Catgirl explore various different aspects of the current regime and possible futures and possible failure points for authoritarian power and what can be countered to that or what might develop as that system decays. If you are interested in more cat girl Kulak, who's not a cat nor a girl nor Kulak, I don't really think Kulak, um, we didn't really get into ethnicity. Links to his work are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is cat girl Kulak. I've never been interviewed on like the cat girl thing, which I think um, <laughs> will be very curious to your audience. Yeah. What but, is uh, up with this cat girl thing? Why cat girl? It's a big thing. It's a thing. So cat girls in general, um, part of this idea came from um, a uh, podcast and discussion I did with a group of friends that we kind of dived into um, the nature of super stimuli and, uh, it was over at the Bailey podcast with Yassine Mascoud. And um, a big part of this discussion was um, we called it the banality of cat girls. And the the discussion was, what is the nature of super stimuli? Because like, there's obvious stuff that's like, okay, this is just um, hard, hot wiring your reward mechanisms, like opioids and stuff. But, but there's a hard debate as... And you can see this in animals where, um, like, um, mother birds, if you paint um, little receptacles, like little metal receptacles with the right colors so that they're especially vibrant, they'll put the food in the metal receptacles instead of in the mouths of their chicks. Yeah. Because their mind isn't programmed to, like, rationally think of feed my baby it's programmed to put food in color you see this with baby monkeys will cling to a metal shell that has like a very soft fur on it because their brain is wired cling to fur so cat girls are kind of like a fifth super stimuli so cats house cats have evolved across like ten thousand years close to to manipulate people and to um simulate like a baby but more pleasant so slightly cuter um less annoying like like people get really frustrated and shake their baby until it's brain damage people don't do that with cats 
they'll just pester you enough to get food and then they'll be cute. So they're hot wiring the reward mechanism to, to feed off humans. And this is why, you know, the crazy cat lady is a eternal trope because of course, as soon as women don't have children or if they, for some reason, fail to have children, all suddenly the cats just start hacking that nurture, nurture instinct. Yeah. And, and of course the modern woman is a super stimuli in a lot of ways where, um, makeup clothing you know trillion dollar industries if you add up everything that's been spent over the past 500 years on making women maximally attractive trillions of dollars have been spent researching and kind of designing what is the modern woman or the modern idealized women and maybe billions hundreds tens of billions of dollars in anime specifically to design like the tropes of feminine cuteness this to specifically hack the nerve brain like um and like no woman in real life actually acts like an anime girl or like there's a very tangential relation to real traits that once existed mm-hmm. existed but but it's been pretty much designed to maximally hack kind of the nerd affection slight irritation relationship forming dynamic so the cat girl is is especially the cat girl is all three of them, all two of them kind of merged together where it's the felines adapted manipulation of people, anime's adapted manipulation of people, and just general women's adapted manipulation of men. And so we had this whole debate and then I was a young Twitter personality at the time, and I decided to start making memes about it. And I got on Twitter right as um, the war in Ukraine was starting, and there were all these articles about um, the female fighters of Ukraine, all these like propaganda photos of like these girls who who were like hot Ukrainian women dressed in military attire with assault weapons, it's like, oh, they're fighting the war in Ukraine, but then you look closely and, like, they're, they've done their makeup perfectly and they've got earrings and stuff stuff on, and they're very obviously put up, like, doing a propaganda shoot. Like, it's very obvious these people haven't been in the trenches for two weeks. Hmm. Two weeks fighting. But, of course, Western media ate it up because um, they could splash this out there and get a million clicks off of it. And... They could pretend to be feminists while while pimping out these Ukrainian uh, models, pretty much, and they could pretend to be patriotic and really sticking it to Putin while doing it as well. So, of course, I I started photoshopping these and putting um, cat ears on all these photos of like Ukrainian propaganda photos and and like putting out little little tweets with um, text. Oh uh, yes, the third mouser Kateer has achieved this much. Scritcher scratch kerplatz kerplat orc and stuff like this. And so my personality, which had been um just just Kulak with his blog, evolved into Catgirl Kulak, who is doing all of this. And then that became kind of pass passe, like I would wasn't getting as much up 
uh, for each on that. But the branding stuck as I started like putting out, um, as I started putting out, out threads and articles and stuff. And someone had said to me at some point, yeah, man, Twitter, it's all a chip. Uh, if you have a female profile pic, you just get way more engagement. Like they'll, they'll give these girls engagement for anything. And I'm like, you don't say, <laughs> huh? Really? <laughs> so of course I stuck with it. And then AI came out and I'm like, well, I had my, um, main profile pick right now is, um, talking about super stimuli, super stimuli, super stimuli. It was, um, this, um, photo of a Rhodesian girl from like 1978. And if you look at, up the original black and white photo looks nothing like her. I've even had people who were like from Rhodesia at the time message me, Hey, is that so-and-so I can't, can't tell because what happened was the internet found this photo of like this, um, 19 year old Rhodesian girl from 78 saw that she had a classic truck behind her and a, um, and a 1911 strung under her arm. Yeah. So of course, immediately they edited it to hell, like added the bloom, contoured the face, like like it was an artificial photo by the time I got it. It was like basically AI before AI. So then of course um I can actually send a high quality version of it to you, to you. Um the but um so it was basically AI of AI bef- before AI before I got to it. Like it was yeah. a complete artifice artifice and it had all this bloom and like it was return embodied like this ideal Aryan woman so I said you know what this is already like a like a complete artif- artifice and internet hyper object I'm going to yeah. photoshop cat ears onto it so you are uh, when did you when did you join the internet I've been on the internet obviously since I was like way young like i remember i remember newgrounds back in the day like before youtube when like only animation really worked as video yeah a few years ago i started like writing kind of essay type things just some socially on on web forms like commenting to friends and stuff and it was only really start of this year that um sorry not this year last year that um I both got on Twitter and had a sub stack up and started putting um, my writings online. And before that I had worked in um, marketing and sales. So people wonder what's your secret? Why are you growing so fast? And the answer is I have this massive spreadsheet where I just track everything I do every day Uh day on Twitter, track all my numbers and like, have the ratio that it's like, Oh, you've only added this many followers today. That's only 0.5%. You need to be at 0.7 or else your doubling time is too slow. So really most of my days, a lot of just fussing the numbers and like, okay, can I put this out and get that that number Hmm. up? Can I do this or that working in sales fried my brain and fried my sense of what work ethic is, but Well, I was I was going to ask, like, do you think that growing up on the internet or heavily plugged into the internet has fried your brain in one way or another? Oh yeah, yeah. Like, um, well, I, I don't mean that negatively I, because I just you you seem very adept to the meme 
verse and how these things, uh, how communication happens in this very uh, imagistic and, and uh, just this meme environment and how, how meaning operates and then also how to manipulate meaning in order to get to tell stories, to tell narratives, which is what your threads are. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, honestly, I can't really relate to normal people who aren't on the internet. Like, um, it's very, it's very, very odd. I'll go into online forums and immediately be, um, social as can be like have a dozen friends, like just on a discord or whatnot, but like life offline is like, that isn't intermediated through like manipulating images and tons of other stuff. Like, um, I find normal people who just grill like deeply confusing, (laughs) but yeah, no, definitely like complete brain rewire. And of course, um, anyone who follows me knows I'm a libertarian, which is like kind of the ultimate online ideology. Like it's an ideology you can only hold if you watch like, dozens of hours of video and like read tons of pdfs and stuff like libertarian economics as tight as it is basically to hold the libertarian position on anything you have to have like followed a multi-step three-way counterintuitive argument <laughs> incredibly enticing to the online autist crowd this is why like every libertarian get together you have 50 incredibly committed hyper online white men like no one else which if america ever has a revolution i'm still betting the libertarians are going to play the role of bolsheviks because that's like the exact same demographic it's like hyper autistic middle class elite aspirants who have favorite economists that's usually who wins revolutions huh James Lindsay, who's a frequent guest on my channel, he did a tweet about first, second, third, fourth generation warfare, first generation warfare being, uh, you know, like organized um, armies against armies, and then second generation is guerrilla, and I don't know what the third generation, but he was talking about meme warfare. And so from your point of view, especially with the the content that you're creating, which again is narrative based, you're telling stories, you're, you're talking, um, you're proposing ideas and, and you're backing up these ideas with, you know, data or historical reference points, stuff like that. You're participating in, in a sort of, I mean, not that you're a warrior, but you're participating in some sort of you know, meme war, you know, you're, you're challenging, um, accepted narratives you're you're exposing um gaps in narratives right what what do you think about the state broadly speaking and then your role within the state of discourse like online discourse political discourse um so so to bring it back to the the generation warfare analogy i never really liked that metaphor that way of way of thinking because it inherently assumes that there's like one institution, one type of institution that's inherently going to dominate the, the nation state. So like the generations warfare kind of only makes sense in the same way that generations of fashion do where um, the U S so the sixties, everything looked a certain way. The seventies, everything looks a certain way. The eighties, the nineties, it's because there's this big national culture that's maintained through centralized institutions, newspapers, centralized film industry, centralized television. It's all pretty much moving in lockstep with a class. And as soon as you get to the 
the 2000s and especially today, what's the fashion in in the 2010s? 10s 2020s and it's like well it's kind of exploded like there's some gender goblins there's there's steampunk there are guys who are going return right-wing body bodybuilders and stuff like the fashion really explodes and if you look at warfare it's kind of always been that way so at the same time it's like so if you look at so at the same time you'd say well there's a napoleonic era of warfare that replaced um kind of prussian style style warfare um where where the napoleonic levy on mass you had 10 times as many less trained troops whereas the prussians had you know ten thousand troops that could fight in two directions at once like there's famous photos of of prussian line infantry where two lines of their troops are fighting an enemy in front of them and one of them has swung back around and is firing backwards at an enemy behind them because they were that disciplined that they could fight line warfare completely surrounded. Yeah. But of course you had to train troops like crazy for that. And, and you needed two years of training and you just didn't have that many. So the Prussian way of warfare just died out in favor of like mass conscription, like um, Napoleon and them did. The thing is that analogy of like, Oh, that's a generational shift in warfare and organization. That really only makes sense if you're talking like European nations. states. so like um, the Apaches and natives would last, you know, 130 more years from that that point in some form of open rebellion against the U.S. And their structure was like completely alien and different, and might still involve bows and arrows and and horses. And largely, what I think is is happening in in culture and institutions is we're seeing probably an explosion of like types of institutions and types of organizations that are existing in the world so so just at a geopolitical level um we're seeing that the u.s thinks it's gone through all five generations of warfare is completing competing in meme warfare but then the russian state and Ukraine have basically reverted back to World War One, one trench tactics, yeah. augmented by drones, and looks completely different than what's happening. What's happened with the um, ISIS conquer Mosul, where where essentially they did the exact opposite. They used something akin to berserker tactics, where they just charged like 500, 700 fighters into a city of a million in Mosul with a garrison of 20,000. That was an out number 20, 50 to one. Yeah. And, but they just moved with such a violence of action that they got the entire city to panic and evacuate. And they captured a city of a million with under a thousand men. Wow. Men, which is like, not only is that in, extreme form of warfare like you have to go back to like viking sagas to find an analogy to it okay. to it but it's also were they able to hold that position yeah they, they held it for a year okay like um it took them six months to recapture mosul after that after they started besieging the city like it was insane they held they had a complete caliphate there like administering the city running taxes um 
enslaving Yazidi girls to sell off in their slave markets. Like, um, like, so not only do you have this, these two incredible extremes of warfare where you have world war one trench tactics, you might spend a hundred lives to move 30 meters and you have complete berserker tactics where 700 dedicated men can take a city of a million in six days but you're having that happen within seven years of each other. I have a piece I've written on motorcycles and warfare. You look at um, the Taliban or right now um, what's happening in Niger and the Islamic group, Islamist groups in the Sahel, um, the wider Saharan African region, kind of where the Sahara meets the jungle and the inner interplay between the two kind of grasslands right there. You're seeing these mass motorcycle movements that might travel like a thousand kilometers in a, in a day or two where it's, um, you can see these hordes of men, maybe like 500, 400 of them are on motorcycles and like the rest are running a few Jeeps and the guys in the Jeeps are filming it and they put music over it and, uh, I wish I. So this was literally Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, you can find photos uh, of stuff like this. It's Mad Max with um, Islamist music playing over it, and everyone's okay. wearing wearing scarves and stuff. But yeah, it looks exactly like Mad Mad Max, only with more rocket launchers. And it's like these are three radical extremes of um, warfare that are very, very different than each other. You have like basically motorized Mongol hordes. You have, you have Islamic berserkers and then you have like sci-fi cyberpunk trench warfare. And they're all happening at the same, same time. And there's no direct analogy where you could even say that there's a generation because there's three different type, types of organization go, going on. And you have like, um, Part of me wonders what it's like to be, you know, a Wagner captain or something where it's like you have to be studying World War One trench warfare. And then you also have to be studying, studying um, horse archery tactics at the same time because you're being swapped back because you might be swapped back and forth between Ukraine and North Africa. Yeah, but the... The idea that there's distinct generations of warfare that are applying today, um, I, I don't see it. Um, you see this also with the cartels where they're a completely different type of organization based around profit, profit and secrecy even more so than, than terrorist groups. And their mm-hmm. tactics are completely different. Um, you look in... North Ireland, there's always constant rumblings that, oh, it could heat up again. But you look at what they were doing in the 90s, their type of guerrilla warfare, which um, there's a great book, Fry the Brain, that goes through the history of um, guerrilla sniper campaigns. It goes from like uh, 1870 with um, the first partisan activity against um, the German occupation of France in the Franco-Prussian War, right up to... Um, um, the, the invasion of Iraq and the the Iraq War, and goes through all of it, and that's a also a completely different type of warfare. Like um, you'll get weird analogies between 
stuff like the Sniper Alley in Sarajevo and the DC Sniper campaign by um, those two two lunatics back in like 2002, 2003. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, that's what warfare looks like now. You know, it's these clandestine groups that are that are obsessed with counter forensics. You know, it's it's CSI as battlefield where people are taking Q-tips and like wiping out their nose hairs and like washing their face immediately so that they don't get um, stopped and sprayed. And, oh, you have gunpowder residue on you. And, you know, one person takes a shot, rifle gets handed to another person. They get loaded in a car and moved. Another person cleans the scene. Um, All while the couple who actually owns the apartment is away, like these advanced like magic trick operations where you're going to make a, a bullet appear, go through a soldier and no one knows how that happened. And it's like, Oh, that's what warfare looks like now. That's what's going on for 30 years. And in North Ireland, that's what was going on in, in Baghdad. It's like, you could have studied that for 10 years and like done interviews with everyone. Yeah. And know nothing about what the capture Mosul or, um, or um, the battle for um, Mediopol. I think that's how you pronounce it. Ukraine would look like where the types of institutions are able to hmm. to commit violence and to create political order and to to prosecute that are so widely spread and so different in terms of what resources they can bring to bear and what they're type of objectives they can achieve whether it's whether it's like actually overwhelming to holding a force in a place and occupying it by force of arms or whether it's pressuring a government into slowly pulling back um the way that that say afghanistan just slowly kept the pressure up that it became intolerable for the u.s to stay there or the ira slowly kept the pressure up such that the good Friday agreement they had to get good terms terms like um, that's completely different than, I don't know, we might see a breakout in Ukraine where, where either the Ukrainian government just folds away or I don't know, theoretically some people, uh, some people who work in, in the U S military keep telling me that there's going to be a breakout by Ukraine and they'll be able to push t- to cut off the Russian land bridge and then they'll be able to negotiate a victory, which I I'm skeptical of, but they believe seem to believe it. So that's like not completely outside the belt bounds of possibility. And that's just like, wait a minute, that's, that's like completely at, at loggerheads with every other type of warfare we've seen. And then you know, there might be war in Taiwan that's, again, completely different. Mm-hmm. Different because it's based off of industrial capacity, capacity and ability to make um, complex ships, but also complex um, uh, rocket systems and how those interact. And, and there's a question of, are U.S. aircraft carriers obsolete because they're now they're planes are outranged by longest range Chinese missiles missiles. And some people have said that. And some people have said, no, that's ridiculous. That's not how the tactics work against each other, but these profoundly different types of organization, different 
types of warfare that people project based on institutions that have completely different different relationships with how much money can you bring to play how many people how do you build legitimacy um i i don't think talking about generations of warfare makes sense anymore i think it makes a lot more sense to talk about business models of warfare oh okay that what like, about just within the within the internet just within the communication sphere how do you see these governments specific? I, you can pick a government that you want, like America or Canada or whoever controls Canada, whoever controls America, the DNC, the deep state, um, the WF, whatever, wherever you want to go with that. But how do they create political order online? And if you look at so, online, is that a, is a war analogy uh, fitting? So I'd argue they don't. Um, the the U.S. right now is probably the best case scenario you can make for they've created this entire censorship apparatus. They have have their letter agency assets basically penetrated into every online social media space. They're really trying to recreate kind of the legacy media false consensus or manufactured consent but yeah. online. So the exact same way, you know, you tune into CNN in like 2005 and you get like the one voice that's dissenting and the one voice that's like really crazy aggressive. And then like five figures in the middle of the panel who all basically agree on what the regime wants. Yeah. And no matter what, you'll feel like you're kind of represented, but the adults, the grownups, the military industrial complex will always be in they really want to recreate that online where it's like, where it's like, um, basically they know they can't censor every dissonant voice off it or else just, um, it'll squirt out to somewhere else. And then this platform, like say Twitter or, or YouTube or wherever they'll, they'll become pretty valueless, but they want to recreate what they had with legacy media where, where they have a control over what seems to be consensus. And as we've seen, they don't have that. Uh, they've, they've struggled and struggled with it. Um, we've seen there's the rise of telegram and enc encrypted chats and stuff like that, where, um, where the cutting edge of the conversation station is always pushing slightly, slightly further out. Um, the analogy I'd say the analogy is really the Gutenberg um, printing press, um, which it is an old metaphor. Um, yeah. You can read Marshall McLuhan and he'll talk about the Gutenberg galaxy and the medium is a message and all that. But like if you look pamphlet at the, wars. And yeah, you know, exactly. Right. Exactly. And theoretically when the Catholic church is everywhere and controls everything, um, yeah, the cathedral, yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
you can have like a massive censorship regime that keeps it it heavily tamped down but as soon as that breaks like um we kind of saw it with donald trump and their need to really go mask off and and use a lot of force in their censorship regime as soon as that breaks and it's going to slip like the u.s empire is is fading um bricks even if they take years which they probably will they don't seem that competent financially but even if they take just to actually create a rival system of payment. Well, as soon as they do that, as soon as you have like another currency out there that's functional and able to interact with the financial system and the US dollar really wouldn't be able to resist it too much. It would have to integrate itself into that system somehow or just risk risk a massive decline in dollar value. Um, mm-hmm. As soon as you have that, well, that's your final like lever of force that you can use to send sensor um you can go back to like 2017 2018 where um uh cody wilson put out a the guy behind 3d printed guns he put out in a platform called hatreon um there's patreon this was hatreon and they had their financing shut down that um uh visa and mastercard wouldn't process payments to them you know create your own financial system system oh wait you can't because that's regulated out of existence yeah but um as soon as there there's like this split in the geography of finance uh china and russia don't really care if you're if you're shooting dissident messages into the u.s or if you're funding dissident voices in in the u.s um they care if you're funding dissident voices in their country they might censor you for that but but they might subsidize you if you're if you're propping up dissident voice in the U S as soon as, as soon as you have some Protestant countries that can run printing presses, you know, the, the Catholics can't censor Protestant pamphlets because you can bring in shiploads of them. So my expectation is within probably the next 10 years, um, I've been calling it boomer Damerung because, um, Hmm. Basically, so much of the censorship apparatus and the reason it's able to feed back into politics is um, because of people like my grandmother who like still watch CNN, still believe it, still read the New York Times, still believe it. People who still are invested and have dedicated a good percentage of their life into believing and deriving their personal status and sense of worth from legacy media and those institutions that are regime controlled, but have some prestige associated with them. Like if you read the New York times every, every day, like that person's very invested in the idea of themselves as like a, um, a layman expert and an educated person. And like, yeah. will fight to defend the legitimacy of the New York times over whatever, you know, conspiracy played over, over zero hedge. But the thing is, those people are old, like within the next 10 years, the, the large mass of boomers that are really driving the vote, vote and really are still controlled by legacy media. Most of them are going to die. And at some point in there, there's going to be the last CNN election, the last um, real legacy media election where legacy media can even drive the conversation or really exercise leverage on how the conversation happens 
at which point like we've already seen seen trump break out and we're seeing seeing now like in both um major parties there are major figures that are entirely online figures you have um robert f kennedy jr and you have vivek ramaswamy Mm. neither of whom both of whom are are um runner up or or um rivals rivals to the front runners main competition who neither of those figures would have risen in um a legacy media environment um robert f kennedy jr especially would they've tried to censor him and make him go away and he just just won't but um the so probably between now and like 2032 there's going to come a point where it's just it's gotten away from you the internet the internet is not censorable anymore and instead of this well how does how does political order occur within that landscape then like a decentralized uh, so, is that this is like the era of like patchwork i i strongly suspect so um so the the u.s and pretty much all the nation states um like that we'd consider so the big four u.s eu russia china um they all yeah. have massive demographic problems uh the u.s on paper has the best demographics but on paper it also has the worst entitlements so um uh, but by what you mean the debt or national debt the national debt but um more than that there's um the national debt which is um the bonds that have been issued that are owned by someone and the u.s has to pay interest to but there's also all the f- uh federal pensions to um for current and former government employees, all the promised benefits to yeah. to the aging. So you're entitled to to tens of thousands of dollars as soon as you're old enough of um, old age security. Um, mm-hmm. um, what do you call it in the states? I'm Canadian. I'm confusing the terms. Old age security. Um, Pension, yeah. Older security. Uh, it's like Medicaid, Medicare, and um, yeah, social security. Yeah, there security. are four parts of Medicare, but um, yeah. oh, what, social security, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I was confusing the Canadian-American terms. Social security, uh, there's some old age benefits, and then there's the four parts of Medicare, which um, are basically free health care for the elderly. And this is tens of of thousands of dollars, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you have like, you know, an old person might have three different types of cancers over their life that all need to be treat, treated and have all been promised and all of them. And it's been promised that all the medication will be paid for as well. Well, and you know, that could be $200,000 for an old person plus oldish uh social security which is tens of thousands of dollars a year in old age age benefits and so the national debt is last i checked 30 trillion dollars this is about 300 trillion dollars in um projected costs that is baked in and politicians cannot renege on and that has to be paid at some point and 
probably what's going to happen right now. The U.S. can spend about three dollars for every two it taxes in because of um, because of dollar printing and the fact that it's the world reserve currency and and you can just issue a ton more more money against the world economy because the world economy is using it and it doesn't dilute the same way it would yeah. if you're just um, Argentinian money. Argentina, not all Argentinians even use the Argentinian dollar. So you print more Argentinian money, you know, you know, you might only be able to dilute it against half of what the Ar- Argentinian um, economy GDP is. Whereas the U.S., you can print you can print dollars instead of the cost of debt and and interest rates and inflation being proportionate to the size of the U.S. economy. It's proportionate to the size of the world economy. Yeah. yeah. So thirty trillion dollars in U.S. debt. It sounds like a lot, but against the world economy of one hundred and fifty, it's like. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's only 20%. But as soon as the dollar stops being the reserve currency and dollars start pouring back into the U.S., all suddenly interest rates spike. All suddenly you have to start... uh, When you have a big debt, you have to bring in more money than you spent. Like um, you as an individual, if you have a, a mortgage on a house and you have a big debt on it, you have to be paying the interest on the mortgage, which means if you're making like 50,000 a year, you can't be spending 50,000 a year, even if you could without taxes, you have to be paying off the interest. And then for the 50,000 a year you bring in, you can only spend maybe 35,000 a year because of 15,000 interest. And that can happen at the national level where um, suddenly the U.S. and U.S. entitlements, U.S. national that's mean that the U.S. is taxing massively and none of it and very little of it is actually coming back to buy off factions of the U.S. So um, most of the U.S. peace right now, uh, you look back at the 60s and 70s and you see massive terrorist movements. Um, 2,500 bombs went off in 1972 in America. Yeah. Uh, you can read Days of Rage. There are all these protest movements. Um, black nationalists were murdering police officers. Why did that stop? Why did, Why is the U.S. so peaceful now? Why do? Why are American politics fake and gay, look, by and large? Um, why is it that, that elections never seem to matter? Why is it that people don't seem to care about elections? By and large, like, you look at American elections and it's like, like, oh, these are, this is the most important election of our life, and the last three have been as well. But if you actually compare it to, like, an election Botswana or most of the rest of the world where elections, you know, there might be riots in the streets over the elections, you know, there might be hundreds of people dead every election. election um, the election, who wins might determine whether there's a civil war or not. Why do Americans care so much less than that? Well, it's because there isn't really a cost for anyone. Um, all the factions have been bought off. Um, if you're an urban, urban blacks have been bought off with decades of um, uh, welfare and other benefits. Um, urban black school schools, they talk about schools being under underfunded, but the truth is like the worst schools in the U.S. that you never want to spend, send your kids if you could like would rather saw off their legs and send them into a disability school than send 
send them huh. there, yeah. they actually receive tens of thousands more dollars than the average school in the suburbs. And most of that goes through de facto welfare programs. So like lots of school meals and stuff like that. At the height of the pandemic, um, when no one was allowed to go to school, it all had to be classes online. Uh, yeah. Urban schools in the U.S., they were sending all the kids in to receive a free school breakfast, sending them home to do classes online, sending them in to receive a free school lunch, sending them home to receive classes online. And then in some of them, sending them into school again to receive a free school dinner and sending them home. Like these massive welfare benefits that mo and backdoor welfare benefits that most people can't even com comprehend, but keep up so many of these communities alive that would other that we've seen are otherwise in revolt or like actively starting protection rackets, actively starting terrorism movements and we saw that happening in the 60s and 70s they've all been bought off with with these massive urban um outreach programs uh yeah. boomers in the 80s uh white boomers who by rights you kind of expect to object to this especially when you're spending that much money and you're benefiting from affirmative action and white boomers are the first fired if they exercise their free speech rights and just say something that's like obvious at a job interview or something and they have to be fired or else their employer will be su sued yeah. to death. All these massive impositions on um, the white middle-class population, all the, they're bought off to put up with all, all of that and to keep those racial tensions completely quiet and to not acknowledge it, acknowledge it through massive tax cuts. So if you look at um, what America spends right now and what the average American, middle-class American pays, there's a massive discrepancy, and you can point to the Reagan tax cuts for that. The military-industrial complex, um, the letter agencies, argue, depending on who you ask, they killed Kennedy and they took out Nixon with, water with Watergate. Um, somehow the FBI had like a half dozen people who were breaking into the Democrats. Democratic National Committee and the FBI budget increased while Nixon lost the presidency. Presidency. Yeah. And they're like, if you actually look at who was on the ground doing Watergate, it's FBI, CIA. Wait a minute. Why didn't, why did we get rid of the president? Why didn't, for, for spying on his rivals, why didn't we get rid of these letter agencies that are obviously um, undermining democracy and running protection rackets on pol politicians? Well, because they won. And so why is, has America been so peaceful since the 70s in terms of um, letter agencies and the, deep, yes. and the deep state with, with regards to Democratic elected politicians? Well, it's because Reagan massively expanded, expanded spending on the letter agencies and the military-industrial complex complex. And basically all these people haven't had to do anything like that because they've been bought off. It's, oh, you work in this letter agency for five or so years, you switch to private industry, you then become a consultant at um, this think tank in D DC, you then come back to your ledger agency or another agency as a director. You could then go into politics or move back to private industry where you'll be paid off again. All these 
all this corruption, all these, all these um, aspects of American life that clearly don't work, all these carve-outs in the tax code, all these programs that hemorrhage money yet don't achieve their goals, goals all of them are buying off some faction that had that has some power and at some point was able to threaten some yeah. someone. And well, what happens when every mafioso is oh is owed ten thousand dollars and there's only five thousand dollars between all three of them? Are they going to accept, oh, we we all have to take a shave, or is it gonna be no no no, you're a crook. Crook, you don't deserve this. Our faction deserves this because of XYZ. No, our faction deserves this because of XYZ. And probably probably will happen if there's ever a dollar crisis is every faction of American life will be at each other's each other's throat. All the tensions that we've had had for like 70 years that was a very dull simmer boils over at once. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's one of these five major groups. Um, just to go back to the, the original question, or one of the original questions about like how do you create political order in the in the information sphere, and you tied that to once the um, American dollar fails, then American censorship apparatus fails. Um, but if the dollar fails, then it, there's a cascade of problems much uh, deeper and broader and more pressing than internet censorship, right? Um, but going forward, how do you, how do you see political order arising in, I guess, if the dollar were to fail or when the dollar does fail, like how is political order going to shake out? Um, like, I can't really answer that question because honestly, as far as I yeah. can tell, it won't, um, like, you see similar eras where there's a major demographic crunch where um, there isn't enough to fund commitments. There isn't enough to maintain old order. Old orders. Um, the financing doesn't work. Doesn't work. Everyone's overcommitted committed to each other and demanding their share. Um, you get eras like um, the French revolution, the collapse of the Bourbon regime, was started when they called a constitutional convention or the Estates General, as they call it, to um, sort out the regime's financing problems. And then that got away from everyone. And of course, no one could agree on anything. And all suddenly, all these old classes that called this to sort out their finances were immediately overwhelmed by the newer classes who had amassed all this problem, but all this power, yet it had no commitments to them. So oh. uh, you also see this in the 30 years war. Um, like we're probably in for a multi-decade plus. Uh, I'm not allowed to, I'm not sure if I can swear on your podcast, but uh, <laughs> I read between the lines there. Yeah. Decade, just, just complete mess. Uh, the, the, what I suspect will happen is, um, if you read something like James Burnham's um, The Managerial Revolution, uh, the entire past hundred years have been defined by the rise of massive bureaucracies. And if you watch something like Star Trek or sci-fi from like the 50s or so, there's this assumption that they have that like is completely alien to anyone living today. 
And that assumption they have is that bureaucracy is efficient and achieves great things. And it's like, wait, wait, what the hell? Why? Why? It's like completely alien to anything we would assume at all. And the answer is because um, the easiest, the easiest way to do something first is just centralizing a lot of power and resources and brute forcing it. So um, you think of communications, setting up telegraphs, you need this massive infrastructure, you need this massive organization, you need to be able to, to set up the wires, and then you need to be able to have people manning the, the um, telegraph offices to relay the messages and send, send them along, etc. cetera. Um, that's a massive centralized prob- problem that basically the only way to make it work and to get it to the point where someone can send a telegraph for a dollar is to create this massive centralized organization to have economies of scale. Um, and you see this assumption in like star Trek where it's like, Oh, organize all of humanity under a federation under the human, under the federation. Then it will have Stacey Abrams run it. It'll be delightful. Yeah, exactly. And you look at, this was how World War II was thought, thought, where everything was centralized, and there's this big assumption that, like, well, obviously, capitalism is going to be replaced by these centralized bureaucracies. You had all these people assuming, yeah, capitalism, that's that's a bygone vestige of something that just, like, barely worked, whereas now we have government to run all this stuff. And there was this real revolution at the time that Burnham wrote about where you had this entirely new class of people, these bureaucrats and administrators, these middle managers, the professional managerial class, um, where everything was running through a state where you'd have state funded universities training these people to go into state funded, um, departments or like arm's length government programs to run everything. And, you know, this is half the U S economy, right? Right now is this bloated, of bureaucracy if you look at all the entities that are either all the people who are either employed by government or um or work at a company that's funded by government or work in an industry that's effectively government like banking there's no market in banking like everything in banking is is what are the regulations requiring and how close are you to the regulator and force forcing it or education uh education basically every teacher is a government employee unless like you're at one of those weird hyper religious private schools that doesn't accept a dime of government funding um same with all the universities uh healthcare basically a government department um hr exists solely to interact with government regulations around employment so there's this entire class that's emerged and originally managerialism um as hierarchy worked because you'd have okay these people doing work they answer to an administ- to a competent manager who answers to a competent manager of managers who answers to a competent manager of managers who answers to a department head who answers to you know Henry Ford or the president yeah and there's someone responsible for every everything and yeah if if something doesn't work, you fire one of the managers and replace them with a young whippersnapper who's hungrier. hungrier. Around yeah. the 60s, with um, all the employment regulations, the Great Society, um, this actually started with the FDR with um, the Civil Administrations Acts 
and stuff like that, where it became vastly harder for a president to, to fire, um, any government employee, basically FDR set it up so that he would be the last American president in any real sense of the word. Like any president that came after him was basically entirely crippled with regard to executive power. Uh, no discretion to hire and fire government employees aside from a few political appointments. Um, and like he, why, why would FDR do that? Other, I mean, there's two, one because, just hubris, um, or did he, he saw what he was setting up and he didn't want one person in control of. Um, so basically, as far as I can tell, he was in love with the machine he created and didn't want it to change. Mm. It, there's an interesting question of FDR psychology that I'm, I'm not a student of his biography. I can't tell you, but, um, like basically my impression is it's kind of an Alexander the great thing who will rule the strongest or like, Oh, I will divide my power amongst my followers. So there's the first generation of FDR's people who, um, people like Herbert Hoover, um, people who really founded the organizations, like um, the first head of the CIA was actually the head of the CIA. He could actually direct it. He could actually, if the conspiracy theories are right, have an American president assassinated because the people were that loyal to them, but they didn't really have a successor as who they groomed to like wield that much power, just as FDR didn't make Truman the next King of America. Um, so slowly the machine has become very, very self-sustaining and the inmates are in charge of the asylum. So now it's basically impossible to fire an administrator or manager. The exact the reason management worked because you had this system of delegation where there's always someone in charge who could solve the problem by firing someone or like directly observing and assigning responsibility. That's completely inverted now to the point where you have these massive, massive committees of, um, yeah. of people who are actually in charge of nothing. They're in charge of creating papers of proposals that may or may never happen but are funded by other people because it, the three proposals within it that will happen, allow them to launder money through a third world country back to a company who works, who accepts, um, you know, government contracts for toilets in Iraq. Yeah. Iraq. And, you know, the actual people inside it don't really understand what their neighbors is doing like they know their scheme to extract money from it but yeah. like joe biden knows his scheme to extract money from ukraine i doubt he really understands what hillary clinton or obama was doing in haiti because he's too concerned with making sure he stole stole and that is so basically that entire class of um kind of the corrupt um nepotistic class yeah. that has infected anything, everything. I suspect that class is going to die. Like, um, I really don't see like, um, they've done this for 80 years and have been leeching off the system. They could assume was there. Uh, it's like, it's like a vine that's latched onto a building building and has been latching onto cliff's edges so long that it's not actually structurally sound. If the building collapses, the vines won't turn into a tree and stand. Um, so most of these people, I suspect you have one good financial crisis or you have 
the dollar go down or you or America loses a war. There's uh, I've been hearing uh, the Tucker interview with um, Douglas McGregor. Uh, he talked about the possibility that the U.S. could lose an aircraft carrier to China. I've been hearing that for years and in years that um, in a war with over Taiwan, there's a very good possibility that U.S. loses multiple aircraft carriers, which a would pretty much break the um, the perception of the aircraft carrier as in, as invulnerable, and b would reveal which Chinese missiles are capable of taking out a U.S. aircraft carrier, in which case those would become immediately the hottest commodity in the world. Every third world dictator would immediately be buying up these these missiles and this tech that could make America stay 500 kilometers further away. Yeah. Okay. And so if one or two aircraft carriers went down, that would probably be the U.S. economy. Like that would probably be... Um, like every international relation the U.S. has, where there's where it terminates in um, the final threat of oh yeah, and we have aircraft carriers. So like every interaction with like a third world dicta- yeah. dictator, every every relationship with the Middle East uh, that could go up in an instant in a t- in a war over Taiwan, and the bureaucratic class just won't survive and what you see is um you see the class that will replace them like if you want to see who's going to be the next class Hmm. um like every great shift in class power um it's almost always the one that's more mobile like um the one that moves around more that's more nomadic um you see this with all the times that horse peoples have conquered china you see this um with the rise of knights in europe or the rise of the vikings that the lords in any given era are very inevitably going to be the people who are just more mobile, more able to move. You see this with the British um, taking over the world with their ships of the lines. You see this um, uh, Washington conquering conquering America and the founding fathers. They were all woodsmen who were like, had probably seen, a great number of them had seen vastly more of the country than like, the commanders of the British armies, they were fighting. Yeah. Fighting. Uh, you see this with how the Apache were able to just hold off the cowboys until basically the, the invention of barbed wire, when it was possible to um, enclose, close the American West and, and shave off their mobility. Um, whoever's more mobile dominates and whoever, whoever more martial dominates. So um, obviously if one of you is really able to fight and one of you is in a feat elite that like can't actually stand up and do anything, mm-hmm. uh, that's only going to go one way over the long term. Um, you see this with um, like the Bolsheviks who were running around Europe for the communist international and had been running terrorist movements for decades in in Russia that um, they're just vastly more equipped and emotionally prepared to, um, to actually grasp, grasp power than most of their competitors who were, who were basically lifelong bureaucrats or um, members of like aspirin elites that were vastly less aggressive. 
And the other big one is um, domination and communication psychology. Getting back to your original question about um, the value of memes. Um, So like being able to propagate complex ideas and organizations. um, I've joked that the libertarians will inevitably win in the American revolution because they've written more economic textbooks and, and like propagated them online and like have created a cast of true believers. But you see this, um, with the rise of national socialism where Hitler was just able to create like a massive cadre of true believers who like would show up to his speeches and read his articles and were very, very down explicitly with, with his program. It wasn't, it was actually the exact opposite of, um, emperor Palpatine. I love democracy. He was giving speeches from like 1921. Hmm. 21 i hate democracy democracy must be done away with it must be contrary in the hands of one ruler so as soon as he had power he had you know hundreds of thousands of people who were like yes this is what we're going to do this is what we have to do what do you mean you're hesitating now are you not a true believer like you didn't have to surprise anyone with like like finessing dictatorship in, yeah in there uh, yeah so so, and you see this with, um, obviously Protestant, the rise of Protestantism, the dominance in like, um, written texts and in the newly literate classes yeah. where they were just able to organize and start a revolution against the world that existed for 1000 years, years based off their organization and radicalism and their willingness to read. So if you look at that, okay, you want to be mobile, you want to be more martial, um, and you want to be really able to propagate coherent ideas, uh, like really committed radical ideas that bind together and cohere and you you agree on. Um, I've joked about libertarians, but you look at it and it's like the influencer right has all of these. Like you look at... Um, you can look at gun tubers, uh, like YouTubers who who talk about guns, and there's, you know, you can look at Demolition Ranch, and they'll teach you how to make explosives on their YouTube channel. And like, oh, these are the three ways that um, circuits close to make things go boom. And like, we'll actually go through in explicit detail the laws of, um, now this is illegal, this isn't, this is legal. This isn't legal. Blah, blah, blah. And like have all their ducks, ducks in a row. And the, you'll have similar figures talk about how to run a guerrilla c- campaign through their YouTube channel, talking about it from a second amendment perspective. Like there's this incredible martial energy within this inf- uh, influential space that really just, that is really trying to propagate the lessons of Iraq to the American popu- population as you know fun history oh this is for preppers and stuff but it's like you're creating a class of people who are equipped to carry out guerrilla warfare and then you have a class of people who like are training themselves to like signal their virtue on the other end by saying oh yes i fired an ar-15 once and i had an emotional breakdown like you can find fears at like box and whatever trying to teach this is how you advance in the corporate world. This is how you advance in the bureaucracy by signaling your, how feet you are by showing that, um, if you do anything martial, 
that it actually psychically wounds you and and um you know i i've seen figures where it's like oh yes the way you advance in the corporate world today is by as a straight white male is by adopting a non-binary gender wearing a dress 50 percent of the days and then you know you'll get promoted and like sure some of them might be like dark triad you know sociopaths say patrick batemaning it you know i'm playing the game to advance but uh, most corporations and most bureaucracies see it's like 80 percent of the people who will do that have like our feet or have some kind of emotional trauma in them that they're they're identifying and they're not going this is stupid but it's funny and i'll do it to get paid more and so you have this massive splitting um you see also in 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 the influencer space and in kind of this new um entrepreneurial class um that really overlaps with um silicon valley tech like most people think um san francisco and the tech world is really left wing but the actual vcs and the actual like programmers and stuff are are this vaguely libertarian class that really would have been kind of the freaks and weirdos in the 90s and they're all cont- continuous with this new kind of influencer international um kind of intellectual class that is martial and like is promoting ideas and is having complex conversations but like isn't part of a academia isn't part of the bureaucracy do you you perceive do you perceive something that's uh, the mirror image of well okay so the the uh, de facto religion of the current ruling class is called wokeness or social justice critical social justice ideology you know or whatever like the way that they virtue signal and is this class of ideas and you can go through and you can examine the ideas and you can make all these inferences from the ideas but a lot of people are just wearing it. Some people really do believe it. Some people are useful idiots of it, but it's generally defined as woke. That's the reigning ideology. That's why we have these progress pride flags, so-called being foisted on the white house, you know, being foisted in these centers of government and the American flag is taking the second seat. So, you know, that there's this ideology that's there. Does this other class that you are describing have some sort of, principle that can be distilled or communicated or is it still decentralized you use the word libertarian maybe that's a smoke screen of this thing is too complex but is there something that animates it that is kind of similar like even just as a you know a tone to what we call woke the kind of new class of um entrepreneurial media influencer types um the big thing that animates them is um i'd say the violation of taboo so the big thing that they can do and the big way that they can um which is the mirror opposite of woke because wokeness is all about enforcing taboos yeah yeah Yeah. and like if you look at uh online or um, a figure trying to gain prestige amongst the social networks of um silicon valley or wherever where there are dissonance and there are other figures a big way to gain loyalty is to violate those taboos and that's actually fairly costless 
like it's high risk, but it doesn't actually because you might get banned, you might get outed, you might have your life destroyed. But um, if you're just some random person trying to start off as an influencer, you know, um, yeah. in a like normal corporate job, like um, in a way, it's pretty much free to start violating taboos and and like getting a lot of prestige that way. But it's risky. Like that's the the payoff matrix. Whereas um, huh. the woke, all their signals are costly, but guaranteed. So um, how do you mean costly? How is it costly to say I have uh, multiple personality? I have all these disorders and pronouns and issues. So if you team. show up as like a like male presenting straight white dude at like. Um, your student council meeting and like try to amass prestige by saying I'm non-binary and um, hope to parlay that into a corporate job. And you just dress like a normal, like buff straight white dude. Uh, they will call you on it immediately. Like um, yeah. they stereotype harder than anyone in the world. Oh, you're non-binary, but you present as male and you have all this male privilege from presenting as male, blah, blah, blah. Like in order to make the signal work, you have to wear the dress. You have to start doing doing stuff. Um, you have to probably the uglier the makeup, the better. Better, like the more you look like a complete. Um, the like more you efface more. yourself, then that's what you yeah. mean by costly. Yeah, the more you like do things that would like destroy your life in a normal, healthy society so like if you in the 1980s if you walk down the street like in ugly ass makeup with your beard wearing a dress and high heel pressed out high heels and your fishnet stockings like that would destroy your social life like you wouldn't be able to present your face in your small town anymore like the closer you get to doing that the more they're going to promote promote you so like um all the you know, it's a deal with the devil. It's it's guaranteed you're 100% going to get what you want, but the price is going to be dear. dear as long so as you, it, the moment you step out of their protection racket, the, the woke protection racket. Yeah, like um, if you're signaling as hard as you can and like really, really like taking the SSRIs and really drinking the soy and really... <laughs> Going vegan and developing the body of like someone who's full vegan and stuff like you will have uh, opportunities thrown on you. If you're actually wearing the dress and wearing the, the makeup and actually like debasing yourself and looking like a freak and destroying your possibility of like interacting with normal America again, because those photos will get out. Like yeah. you can advance like crazy. You can see um, the rec- the spoke, the English language spokesperson for, um, Ukraine, the one they assigned from the U.S. military is yeah. is trans. Like, um, no exceptional traits. Like, no um, no like service, real charisma, honor, no yeah. skills. Yeah. Like, no insight to offer as a PR person. But they went all the way way on the trans thing, so they get prom- promoted. Okay. And you see this all the time, where the loyalty is is promoted um the yeah obviously in terms of like um the racial aspect um they kind of struggle for like racial figures who are able to like 
regurgitate their language at like the level that will manipulate a like university educated white person and do like the bare minimum of competent things to like fulfill their their position in the corporate jobs so like um so like those those figures they're obviously going to advance but they're far between both because it's kind of very hard to get like a poor black person to start regurgitating all this all this language well yeah that's the creation of the dei departments within hr so there's yeah, a, yeah. another layer of uh yeah but like um like realistically if you were like black and willing to deface yourself and like bare minimum competent like you could get pretty close to having your own hedge fund just off of this stuff if you were doing the bare minimum and they aren't finding them them as far as i can tell or the ones they do find like maintain too much of their dignity and can't be promoted Okay, so that, that's like that's that's the signaling. So you're saying that there's a, what uh, animates this group of dissidents, or I don't even know if that's the right term. Like the 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 next class, potentially the next class, is taboo. But that's just signaling to each other. I'm wondering, is there like animating principles, uh, or is it oh. kind of just greed, ambition? You know, do they have like? Uh, is there any sort of remote ideology that can be communicated other than just this kind of vague concept of libertarianism. Oh no, no, no. Like, um, these are two completely separate classes, the influencer class and the, um, bureaucratic class. Okay. Uh, So, so like the libertarian figures that you'll find out like burning man and stuff and like still buried in, in Silicon Valley, uh, their currency is competence and being interesting. And like they're all constantly taking risks to signal that they're willing to violate uh, okay. the taboos of the regime to like forge networks with each with each other. Like it's very not continuous with like the Washington D.C. Um, woke sphere. Okay. Uh, like, and this is a recurring problem that these two have to interface with each other because uh, the. Power. basically you need confident people to run a tech company who are like value competence and like coherence of ideas but um the regime also needs to control those so they have all these apparatchiks who value conformity above all else and that's where that's why like elon is at the center of the culture war because he's right in the eye of the storm of these these two like aspirant elite groups but um <laughs> the the bureaucratic class, like the woke bureaucratic class, um, like um, the the new influencer dissident class, they're overloaded with ideology. Like they're at each other's throats constantly. It's a, it's almost a viper's den of like different ideologies attacking each other. Yeah. How dare you be a Catholic integralist for a Protestant theoc- theocrats or what the hell are you talking about? We're trying to create an arc Kapistan or, um, yeah. you know, yeah. mold buggy and patchwork and all that. Like you can throw 
you can be thrown in a room with these people and all suddenly have like a four way firing, a 12 way <laughs> firing squad with 10 people, people all sniping with like, like hundreds of pages of theory at each other and like different ideas. And no, you don't understand the nature of Lanchester square law and how it relates to the principal agent problem. Like these people are overloaded with ideology. The bureaucratic class, the bureaucratic woke class has no ideology. Uh, this is, this has been like, they have a meme plex. Uh, so obviously like, um, the language games they play to, um, like advance their status. Um, that's a complex meme, meme plex. It's advanced language, language they have. It's, um, it takes a lot of skill actually, actually to stay current with it. You know, one slip up and you say colored people instead of people of color and you're out the door. Yeah. But um, but the actual ideology does not exist. Like there's an idea. There isn't really ideas under it. And there's a very specific reason there isn't ideas under it. Because um, the left stopped being ideological in about 1964. Uh, the What occurred was the 64 Civil Rights Act. Um made discrimination illegal legal in private businesses and public institutions. And immediately what happened was the, um, the legal class, the new civil rights lawyers class, the employment lawyers set about um, working to define everything as discrimination. So of course, disparate impact assessments, all, all these, um, all the complex language around what is or isn't dis- Discrimination. It's all designed to manipulate so that you can sue someone and manipulate the judge into saying, yes, that was discrimination. And of course, the judges, judges are the worst of these activists because um, they really want everything to be discrimination because then they stop being just like judges at an employment court. They start being the default legislators of the land. It's this thin edge of the wedge where you can extract complete social control out of same with same with family courts, how they've been slowly ramped up in politicization to the point where now family judges are determining whether your child will be kidnapped based on your political beliefs. Um, so, but the thing is with, um, wokeness, especially kind of represents the death of left-wing ideology and is complete, um, kind of tail wagging the dog because it's supposed to, how an ideology is supposed to work is that you have um, kind of these philosophers, these thinkers, these economists, these theorizers, these idealistic college students, you know, going into their head and thinking about history, thinking about um, thinking about their values, reading each other, and coming up with this idealized, you know, what should the world be like? What should our policy be? What should we try to achieve? How should we really structure the Federal Reserve? You know, these types of things. You see libertarians do this all the time where they create elaborate libertarians and socialists as well. They create these elaborate um, kind of fantasy worlds where their ideal policy is enacted and yeah. they'll they'll work out, you know, volumes and volumes of this is how it will work out. This is this is how the fields will be tilled. This is who will tend the roads or this is why we won't need need a central government to do it. Blah, 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 blah. Well, wokeness, and then once you've created the theory, then that goes down to the activists. Then that go, then your activists win the political fight. Then that goes into policy, 
and then you go back and you do it again for future future policies and you kind of use the power you've accumulated to um to affect more of your policies wokeness is the exact opposite because they've won the one political fight and got discrimination criminalized and like have successfully screeched down anyone who like valued discrimination um instead basically all their all their ideas thinking all their language all their all the games they play for status so like in usual ideology the game you play for status is you create really good theory and then that propagates and you become a steam for the theory and then that policy develops off off of that and stuff wokeness it's the exact opposite where the policy is in place and the institutions that reinforce it are in place so the purpose of the theory and all of that is to manipulate the, the policy that's already in place or to come up with things that will to win perpetuate the, the policy yeah so um the so like um if you were a left-wing activist and you want to say well what would actually help black people how would we actually solve the problem of black crime and black incarceration and all this stuff and you do the thing that libertarians and old school socialists did and you write an elaborate book with an elaborate theory that has like lots of con counterintuitive cases and you come up with this beautiful model and this is how we get to wakanda and you write it all out and you have like deep dives through the history of theory and economics and all that and you put it out and oh we just have to do with this 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 and the problem is we have this in place immediately what would happen is you'd be cancelled because everything you put out is counterintuitive violates some taboo um, you know in an ideology you're supposed to be rewarded for coherence in wokeness, you'd be immediately punished for not for not um, being subservient to the incoherence. Yeah, because but, the policy is already in place, and you can't break the language game that's created by the policy. Okay, so there's just tension here because if you stick yourself in a room with ten of those counter elites or like this other class that's highly mobile kind of getting martial and stuff there's an incoherence or uh, lack of cohesion in the ideology everybody's arguing everybody's got these theories whereas if you walk into a room of wokies like there's total coherence or at least co like zero cohesion absolute coherence so they can all like get together they can all like run or get status and they are all playing this game that gets them somewhere up that ladder but if there's just so much tension between all these if you look at the the right wing influencer space as you called it there are like there's these people who are into raw eggs and there's these nudist bodybuilder types and then there's these catholics and they're all like you know all kind of somehow in league with each other how do how do you create political order out of that kind of disorder so the so you might look at the woke woke um, uniformity and say that's strength, but um, it's brittle. What it really is is a monoculture. So um, the same way that crops will fail if you have a monoculture, like eventually there will be a potato blight or um, some disease will come along and wipe out. You know, you're exactly perfectly cloned clone species or um, the climactic conditions will shift and it just won't be viable. Uh, you'd see that exactly in wokeness. So, so in answer to your question, 
wokeness exactly has all the advantage you say and that's why it's dominated right now because it's a monoculture in complete uniformity perfectly optimized to control the systems of government we have today and and if the question is well how does that inc how does that um mass of incoherent ideologies constantly in competition with each other mimetic um uh, fighting out compete wokeness today in 2023 three the answer is well it doesn't or it doesn't or at the current moment it absolutely won't because if it could it would have would have yeah. already and okay. it's it's oriented for it the big thing is well what which one survives going going forward and the answer is well the u.s government is a king institution that that this is this um woke mono ideology is perfectly adapted to to parasitize and as soon as the host is gone it's going to die die or as soon as the host gets sufficiently sick it's going to die whereas um out of out of this um kind of distant online line right um new influencer class of um entrepreneurial nomads that are really really pushing the limit of the limits of um various cultures and a good chunk of the ideologies that come over there are not going to to survive like um it might be Nietzschean bodybuilders just are not the ideology of the future. It might be Catholic <laughs> integralists are just going to be this incredibly weird, like, um, you know, the socialists who thought that cities would turn into lemonade. Uh, like there's tons of stuff. You can see similar eras like um, Jacobian France or the early days of socialism where, um, yeah. okay. where the ideologies were equally incoherent, but it's like, well, you have, thousands of ideologies all competing against each other in there and like refining themselves against each other and in, in this competitive space you know as soon as you start introducing those out of that like competitive ghetto into like um uh, monoculture it's like you introduce um all these jungle species that have been competing against each other and you know 10 of them smuggle aboard a ship and wind up in in the great lakes and all suddenly you have like three invasive species that are wiping out the, the local population. Yeah. Population yeah. At some point, at some point what's enforcing this um, monoculture is going to break, which as I've said, there's a lot of disruption coming just in the next 10 years, probably. And that's leaving out the possibility of a military intervention to Mexico or a war with Taiwan or Russia just just getting a lucky sucker punch in and steamrolling Ukraine and changing the map of Europe. Like there's so much disruption coming back around the bend and there's no ideological development happening on the left. There's no space for like old economists and like young ideologues and like very aggressive theory cells are just coming up with, with weird and wacky ideas is that they're desperately trying to gain prestige off of each other with their coherence. Yeah. You have a massive disruption. What's going to happen is um, the woke are going to do what they've, they've always done, do what they can only do, do the only thing they've trained themselves to do, which is say now more than ever and double down harder and faster on what's worked for them in the past and what they need to work for them because 
so many of them wouldn't be in their position without it without it and that will be probably like the exact opposite of what they need to do yeah. do and then they'll just destroy themselves and get out competed uh you see this now with the response to trump um so trump is an incredibly incompetent politician uh like he's not like you think of the kind of people who've like um risen to challenge great empires you know um napoleon bonaparte julius caesar um maximilian robespierre vladimir lenin you know all these figures have like very detailed theories of how the government they were attacking worked they had experience with it they had they had learned and studied from other figures that had challenged it, it before and they had like very aggressive plans and like a deep sense of history um like a lot of these figures would have said yeah i'm gonna go for it and if i die i die like um that was basically um that was lenin's attitude that was caesar's attitude that was to a largest extent napoleon's attitude that like Oh yeah, there's like a 40-60% chance this goes hor- horribly wrong and I get killed horribly. But the other 20% chance I become like one of the greatest figures in history. I like those odds. Yeah. Uh, whereas like Trump has none of that. Like um A he's probably the oldest like world historical figure to ever rise. <laughs> like um I I can't think of another figure who's like Oh yes, then his story began his in his seventies, aside from like Colonel Sanders, and and like politics is not his field. Neither military. He he clearly like isn't a great student of history. Like he hasn't been like like there are some there are some people listening to you right now, and there there are like thousands of people out. Oh, there are maybe millions who, like, since they were a kid, were reading books about stuff like this and thinking, you know, one day, maybe, just maybe, if the cards fall right and I saw the opportunity, I could become the greatest badass in the world. Yeah. It's like, very obviously, that wasn't what Trump was thinking about. He was thinking about business, about branding. It's part of the reason why he's so good is his brand is that strong and how he sells himself to Americans, but he's not thinking of himself as a historical figure. And you saw this with his first term that he was um, very easily hemmed in and like tried to make deals with people that like anyone from the Ron Paul campaign would have told you, no, 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 they will betray you instantly. (laughs) And like didn't hire any of the people who would actually be loyal to him or like immediately betrayed all the people that like any like um, autistic 20 year old could have told you like, no, no, no. Steve Bannon will stay loyal to you to the very end. After you've betrayed him 10 times, he will be loyal to you because you're the only way Steve Bannon is getting any any power. Same with um, General Michael Flynn or all these figures that's like he should have gone to bat for and really held on to. Uh, like, had no clue, clue about, like, he's a very easily contained historical figure. Like, it would have been very easy for them to say, okay yeah trump's the president now uh we're just gonna let him like have a few wins we'll let him make a few deals here and there and say oh look i'm trump i'm making good deals with with um john mccain (laughs) and and the bush family and 
look, we got a new deal with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Aren't I great? I'm Donald Trump. And yeah. he would have absolutely just been another like Bush term with like a little more funding for a border wall. Like they could have bought him off with forty billion dollars to to a border wall in Mexico. It would have been that easy. And like a good chunk of his supporters would have like tried to convince themselves they won because they they were that emotionally invested in it. It would have been the cheapest enemy to buy off in the history of like challenges to empires. And instead yeah. they had this auto immune response where where like Trump was incapable of doing any damage to them yet they basically ripped apart their own empire trying to like get him out and make him falter in all these ways where like um were like they're really hoping that he would be like feel shame or like be um pressured and just resigning or like um the social effects through his like personal network would have a massive effect on, on him. You can see this even now with his convictions and stuff. Like none of these charges can really hold like, um, like the charge for, uh, soliciting a public official to violate their oath of office. Like if that's a charge that can hold, which like, I don't think they've ever even charged a government official with violating their oath of office. So what that even means, like doesn't really exist, but like if that's a charge that holds all suddenly like a rival party could, the Republican party, if they had like people with nerve in it could say, well, every Democrat is guilty of that. They've all advocated their politicians pass gun control in violation of the second amendment. Yeah. Some of them have even said, you know, we need to do away with the Constitution. It was passed by old white slave owners. It's like you're advocating your politicians specifically violate their oath of office to the Constitution. Like um, they've gone completely up the wall while trying to like pressure Trump or um, try to make him culturally unacceptable. This complete, again, I'd say autoimmune response or... um, reflexive so what does that tell you about the, the their fragility their weakness their stupidity like what what is that showing if they could have done something very easy but then they risked it all put everything on the line put their entire legitimacy their credibility online by you know all these different um campaigns to destroy um, him it tells them that um it tells you that the conspiracy theory theory doesn't really hold that um, individual groups of these people can absolutely participate in conspiracies. We've seen this with Epstein, but um, the idea that that all these conspiracies and ideas terminate in like people who are actually capable of making strategic decisions is not true. Like um, oh. it's not a hierarchical hierarchical system that has like a brain at the top that can make decisions. It's like a swamp that's reacting, um, instinctively. So, um, what happened and what I can guarantee you happened is, is, um, Trump got into office and every single one of their incentive was to show how loyal they were to their ideology, to wokeness and all this by saying he was slightly worse. And everyone who had a little bit of power, all their incentives were to say, oh, I'm resisting Trump by doing this extreme thing that has never been done before. But I'm part of the resistance. 
this and she saw this entire entire system of everyone somehow part of the resistance by saying they're part of the resistance, which means wait a minute, the resistance was a like the resistance in France was a conspiracy of like people who were hiding their identity identity and coordinating the shadows. You're a bunch of public figures saying out loud, I'm part of the resistance. And it's and you have to say you're part of the resistance because no one would know you were if you you were what you were doing if you didn't say it. So it's a massive so it's supposed to like a conspiracy with a brain and like yeah. an actual organizational decisions. It's um this massive fashion show, the Emperor with no clothes effect, only there isn't an emperor. There's just just um people increasingly taking off more articles of clothing. <laughs> clothing and you know, if if that was a fashion trend of the emperor with no clothes, but there is no emperor, it's just just oh Stacy's doing it and she's going yeah. further with it. Um so what what it tells us is that they aren't capable of actually making strategic decisions. Um, there may be like, you know, there may be like one or two in like the state department or like, um, some military think bank, you know, Victoria Newland or someone who could like maybe like really go to bat and push like a foreign policy, goal if they like really really wanted to and spend a lot of political capital doing it but like even then it looks like a lot of these figures their power just comes from um from their ability to regurgitate what this what like the logic of the system wants them to do so it's not even clear that they can make strategic decisions you see this in ukraine um ukraine probably the best decision would have been there were various points in the past year where Ukraine had victories or um, had Russia under pressure, where Russia was looking a little, a little weak on the ground, a little, a little thin. Where um, Russia was willing to negotiate, and um, Ukraine probably could have gotten a good chunk of its territory back in exchange for you know the breakaway public republics, some um, Crimea, and saying. Oh, we won't join NATO, but like that pretty much diffused the entire situa- situation. Um, you know, you could impose some costs on on Russia, but you could pretty much force a draw with like little costs yeah. to Ukraine, little cross to Russia, little risk to the American Empire, and no one was able to make that call. They were pressuring Ukraine not to do it. But um, the thing is, so. The question was, well, what's the goal? Well, Ukraine's going to have a breakthrough, push to Mediolopol, cut off the um, the land bridge to Crimea, and then we'll negotiate, and Russia will really be up against, against the wall. And it's like, and someone pointed out, well, if that happened, all these figures who are saying, no, Ukraine mustn't negotiate, we can't like supersede to Russia, wouldn't say, oh, yes, this is Ukraine's moment of, like, rare moment of like seemingly shocking victory where you could negotiate now, which would a Russian negotiate then who knows. But, um, hmm. all those figures would actually be saying, no, we're winning. We've got to push Russia all the way out. And, and like the logic of the system, there's, there isn't like a Henry Kissinger in, in charge of this profile who could actually say, no, 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 we're calling it, calling it here. And we're taking, 
we're taking the chips we were we were wanting going home. Like they're incapable of making these strategic decisions. So probably what's going to happen is, you know, maybe like um, like even if they're operating memetically, memes can be fairly complex. So like hmm. maybe that continues for like for like a few years where it's like oh, you know, they can have have panics and like. It's not intentional, but they do make make like kind of calls. But eventually, very soon, we've seen this already with a lot of U.S. wars, where um, the the horde of like a hundred thousand people who are in charge of U.S. foreign policy, like it's a massive, massive ecosystem of people who like all have some input and like none of whom can really go against the collective will where they'll just keep talking themselves into things. And we're seeing this in Taiwan and they'll just get their entire system in a position that they can't get it you know, out of. They'll just talk themselves into a ditch somehow. Uh, I don't, you know, in world war two, the U S was like a very com complex, um, fine tuned machine that like one person could drive. Like, um, FDR could actually make calls and like, like theoretically, if he wanted to, could have just betrayed Stalin in the middle of, middle of the war. He and Churchill could have decided, no, we're going with Operation Unthinkable. We're going from fighting the Germans to arming the arming the Germans. And these were plans they had drawn up, drawn huh. up at points that oh, we could could do this. And it's like, wait a minute, they had that much control that they thought they could turn it on a dime get all their people and all their departments and all their organizations on board with switching who the enemy was, was, and like, that was a plan they kind of had worked, worked out that, yeah, that'd be a maneuver, but we could do it. Whereas now it's like completely unthinkable that you're going to change who the bad guy is mid mid war. And you think that like the charisma of Joe Biden could do that. Well, yeah. 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 So it's gone from like being a Ferrari that one person is driving to being a, a, you know, hundred thousand ton cruise ship that a hundred thousand people are driving by committee. Yeah. Yeah. And Which, how, how do you see Trump, the Trump effect, like working out, uh, with, going forward is that like they're, they're still trying to indict him and stuff like that so that like the the same thing it's like everybody's talked themselves into making him an enemy like even a bigger stumbling block for them by propping him up by persecuting him so how, Honestly, how that... i think um there's um that meme from the simpsons where um uh monty burns has three stooges syndrome um he has so many diseases at once that it's keeping him alive that um, the, <laughs> the doctor shoves like all these dolls of the various diseases. This is, this is Ebola. This is cancer. This is, this is AIDS. Tries to shove them through a doorway of mon uh, prop doorway. You see, they're all stuck. And Monty Burns, Oh, so I'm invincible. No, no, no. Even a stiff breeze. Well, I think, <laughs> Uh, Donald Trump is probably the biggest one of those that's holding up all the 
the others. I think he's probably somehow load bearing in the American system because um, somehow having like the embodiment of um, all the right wing anger and populist revolt be this complete boomer detached billionaire who has no idea of policy and really thinks we just need eight, 80s Democrats to be back in charge. Like, um, that's like, it's clearly inflaming the system. Like you can see how the American regime is going nuts about it, how the supporters are going nuts. But like, imagine anyone else in the shoes of Donald Trump. Imagine, you know, Julius Caesar or Che Guevara or, um, or, um, I don't know, FDR or Nixon or, or literally anyone else. Imagine Napoleon or Wellington or, any other historical figure and they'd immediately think how can i make this blow up in a way that like maybe kills me but maybe makes me emperor of humanity and instead trump's thinking how do i sell more more um, mugs with this (laughs) yeah and so I think the fact that Trump is so old, the fact that his ideas are so like he's somehow managing to be based by being like Hubert Humphrey. And, and I think that's probably load bearing that, um, probably the thing that saved America is, um, that there was, there were several, there was an autistic kid who tried to grab a um, handgun off a secret service agent and shoot Trump. And probably what saved America is that that failed and none of the other assassination attempts have worked. Like, um, if Trump died or like healed over of a heart attack, and of course no American, like no Democrat even would actually believe like, oh, the CIA had him with actually believed he just keeled over on his own. They'd be, oh, the CIA hit him with a heart attack gun. Oh, he was poisoned. The commission into the Trump death would last 10 years. Like, probably without Trump, if you had to have another figure, if um, all suddenly everyone was the based American right, like all of conservatism was trying to rally around Vivek Ramaswamy, who's like, like, by no means a great like, I don't agree with all his policies, but, like, has a real will to power behind him and has an energy and, like, has an intentionality that is, like, could be very dangerous on the world stage and has, like, actually built the companies that Trump Trump claims to have built and, like, is still young and full of ambition. Like, that could be very, very dangerous. That could be dangerous with, like, a hundred different figures. It's not like Trumpism and population populism is going to go away. If Trump disappears, it's, yeah. it would probably well, dangerous. How Vivek's dangerous. Ideological. Pardon? Like a threat. Like you said that Vivek would be dangerous, but what do you mean? Like a threat or. Oh, I mean like, um, like might actually do something with the energy that's underneath them. Like Trump somehow, like all this energy builds and builds in him and then dilutes like, um, like somehow he has like a hundred thousand people in Washington, DC when the Supreme court, the Senate, the house and everyone's there and they're all ready to launch a coup for Donald Trump. Like, um, if he had said, take the Capitol and put me on the throne, like, 
most of those people would have done done it in America history would have changed forever but instead like you had had a massive crowd storming the Capitol and Donald Trump's be very peaceful we want to maintain we're the party of law and order do not obstruct Capitol Police uh, we all love you you've got to go home now now the fact that like like there's maybe five percent of world historical figures like or that doesn't involve end in them having a hot civil war with the government from that position like um i don't know you take if you were to take like um the brothers Gracchi or um or i don't know verse in generic set of history and put them in trump's shoes right there like do we have three years of Joe Biden kind of doing nothing badly and then another election? Like, um, like there was a huge amount of energy. We've had so much, so much happen in the past eight years. It like, you forget them like, Oh yes. A hundred American cities burned. Oh yes. There were shootouts in the streets. Oh yes. Everyone was locked down in their house and hard borders were put up put up around the country so much so that Canada, Canada had a trucker convoy of like thousands bringing hundreds of tons of steel to Ottawa and almost tearing that country apart or like things got that dire. And yet we're back to where we were in like 2015, 2016 where Trump's running again (laughs) and everyone's talking about how the, the memes were like he's this incredible stabilizing force on the american system huh. system like like if he keels over um and all suddenly goes where does all to, that energy go yeah exactly yeah. all suddenly you have all these young ideologues who like have been writing reams and reams of theory you know the ghosts of ron ron paul is still out out there he's still alive and his movement of like people who actively think that the entire federal government is a fraud perpetrated against them like that's still out there you still have um hmm. you have millions of americans who think that you need like armed turrets on the border you have you have um this massive standoff between the city in the country like that energy has to go somewhere and I, this is the last election that trump can suck up the energy and like try to and trigger the libs by being an 80s democrat yeah yeah which is the safest possible way to uh, uh yeah to, to take the the negative energy from one side and the positive energy from the other side and kind of just d- dissipate them into like a fuel vila just like memes trump yeah hate. Yeah, or Trump love. Like, well, like that's why um, I don't know. There's a real risk that um, they will somehow try to stop stop Trump with the, some autoimmune response that they'd actually like arrest him and make him campaign from prison, or like um, or like that they'll actually bring try to bring in like a climate lockdown or a democracy lockdown to bring back vote by mail because yeah. the country's getting too dangerous and stuff like you can see them the more the more aspirational wings of um the regime floating these ideas is um you already see 
like um, Alex Jones was going off about they're going to try to bring lockdowns back, which like honestly would kind of be a good play in that um, that they would use that to prop up DeSantis. As far as I I can tell, I'm like, well, why would they? It's like, well, probably this is just, um, you know, Pfizer and it's um, associates in the deep state, state trying to sell vaccines this fall. Like, oh, yeah, we can probably get the TSA to make everyone wear masks again. They'll get more old ladies buying back, scared and buying vaccines. But um, if it was like actually structural and they were going to try to push it harder, like um, the reason you do that is because you wanted um, DeSantis to outcompete Trump because DeSantis, you know, there are all these quotes of him saying we're not going to lock down all these quotes of Trump saying we locked down the hardest. It was the best lockdown. But, um, yeah, like, I don't know, that might torpedo the Democrats. So I doubt they even do that. But there's always, you know, there's always this risk with the regime because it's um, there isn't an intelligence behind it. There isn't a chess player behind it that um, they'll just get carried away with some something like they have with the Internet censorship and like or Internet censorship or the war on terror or like lockdowns. And it's just burned through a decade of through of the American Empire's finances that they can't really do without. Yeah, yeah. So, but so yeah, twenty twenty what twenty twenty. I was just gonna say that um, if if like Trump winds up taken out of this election or like loses or um or dies uh things would probably kick off into like a new era of american history like as soon as the trump era is over you know history could happen really really fast or heaven help us he wins and we have four more years of of the tensions building up because they do all the exact same things they did 2016 to 2020 and and then you know things slowly start to k- kick off in um for 2028 20, but it i i really don't see like electoral politics being the um big defining thing in american life that it is now because basically as soon as trump's gone the the ideological energy Trump's going to be considered a failure basically no matter what he does. Like there's nothing he could do that's like, Oh yes, he solved all of America's problems. It'll be, be, Oh, Trump, Trump was an example of what not to do because nothing was achieved or Trump opened the door to what was possible. But, but now we actually have to be ideological. So what you'll probably see is as soon as Trump's, Trump's gone or secured in the White House, all suddenly the ideological energy on the right starts starts really trying to find expression in like more coherent policy outcomes and stuff and things heat up pretty fast. Uh, so as soon as you have a system with a real challenger try, challenger movement trying to implement real policy against it, you already kind of see this um, 
the Mises caucus of the Liber- Libertarian Party, um, mm-hmm. they have no oxygen in the room to like really get in the news cycle, but they've come up with um, policy movements um, like back the guard and other things like that, that at the state level are trying to make, um, mm-hmm. trying to pass laws that um, state legislatures won't allow state governors to use um, the national guard in American foreign military adventures, unless there's a declaration of war by Congress, which sounds very technical, but would pretty much have precluded the war in Iraq or um, or several other uses of the National Guard and would cripple the empire if it was implemented widely. Um, and you see tons of movements like that on the margin. Um, they're also taking over a, a ton of local figures. One of the big ones is they're trying to get um, county sheriffs, which... Um, can really cripple enforcement of a lot of federal laws. And basically there's this entire shadow movement in the country. They saw first with stuff like sanctuary cities and legalization in California and blue states where um, basically state and local governments just said, no, we're going to void federal law and not enforce it. Yeah. And, tried to stop us from having cannabis dispensaries and try to stop us from giving illegals IDs. And basically there's an entire movement within um, conservative thought and libertarian thought that's running with that and saying, well, what can we do in our, our states to avoid the federal government? So you might see as soon as Trump is gone, this kind of holy Roman empirization of America where also we, a lot of M- a lot of energy goes into movements like that where it's like, well, Trumpism failed. What will work? Well, this has been working. And all of a sudden, the federal power really starts to collapse in regional powers. America be- becomes sort of a patchwork of yeah. sovereign places. That, And then as soon as you have that in some, I'm telling people to look, look forward to this now. This will happen at some point. At some point, probably some state or locality will say they will not um, allow their local forces to be used to enforce the income tax. Like, um, if you look at um, the kind of death spiral delegitimization, well, we aren't going to enforce drug laws. We aren't going to enforce immigration laws. We aren't going to enforce gun laws. Eventually, it becomes, well, what, what part, in what respect is the U.S. government sovereign? And... And it turns out, well, are they even getting tax revenue from this area? And that, like, if you had a real national crisis, that could happen where some wacky governor or or mayor says, no, our, our police forces won't, won't be used to enforce it. And there's only so many IRS agents and they aren't really equipped to do, do raids and stuff. And that would probably be kind of the terminus of that, which all sounds very like theoretical and out there in the wilderness right now, because of course all politics right now is consumed by Trump. But if you ask, well, what's been growing underneath Trump and what's been having an effect and what isn't dependent on a big orange man triggering the libs, yeah. libs and getting on the news, news media and, uh, and getting his mother shot taken. So that's all been growing under the surface. And as soon as he's gone, all that energy that's been going into Trump and all that um, political campaigning and energy, all these radicals who say, no, this is how we save America. They might say, 
well, what can, can we do? And that groundwork's all, all been laid by these kooky libertarians and second amendment types types and this kind of world of theory cells that don't get talked about in public spaces. Yeah. What, but what happens to all those buy-offs, like going back to uh, the seventies and the eighties where there was a lot of unrest in America and then the government or the state adapted by buying off, you know, we'll give you discounts on taxes and we'll give you uh, you know, infinite free lunch uh, and all that structure, which quelled dissent without the federal government doing, articulating that what happens to all that energy where, uh, you know, all these people who so have... probably, so probably you get like a, a smoldering civil conflict of some kind. So, um, the obvious one is um, race riots. America has had race riots like every 30 years, like clockwork. Um, you had them in the 90s. You had them with George Floyd. Um, yeah. They're always boiling under the surface. And every time they happen, new programs are passed, new symbolic gestures are made, new, new Democratic politicians take the knee. And... And it goes back back to a dull roar. Probably as soon as the money starts drying, drying up. Like military industrial complex has way more influence than urban blacks will ever have. Have and if you think Raytheon's losing its pound of flesh before Jamal is, you're insane. <laughs> so probably as soon as um. Probably as soon as like America's finances start to look look bad or really go under pressure um we'd see race riots and calls for new reparations and um reparations from whom like, though if if there's if that thread unravels then who does well, that demographic appeal to uh, usually what ha- happens like we saw in the summer of floyd is they get bought off within a month month or two what's probably going to happen is um the race riots start but then they don't stop so like crime spikes spikes up it's already spiked up um like kind of stably like since the summer of floyd america hasn't been as as peaceful but um if you look at the 60s and 70s it was race riot then the town start dec- start declining then you start having like guerrilla movements of like black radicals murdering police officers and like probably you could see something else also happened um like the Sibanese Liberation Army was a good example. There was the FALN. Um I I'm rereading Days of Rage and there was a huge huge number of them. You saw this um also during the um the twenty fifteen riots where there were um radical um black Black Marines and ex-police officers actually assassinated several American police officers in the U.S. in 2015. Um, there was a one in Dallas, one in Baton Rouge, one in L.A. L.A. And probably what happens is if um, American racial violence sp- spikes up and it just has to be put down by by the police and um that goes hard you'd see low-level racial conflict like you saw in the 60s and in 70s again um then it would come to dc where um you'd see Hmm. massive battles over um 
who's having their department cut and who's being laid off and um, massive battles. Um, probably what you'd see is um, you see this in France recently. Um, the, they were going to raise the age of retirement from like 63 to 65 or 65 to 67. Yeah. Oh, you'd see something similar in the States where the government announces, Oh, um, social security is going to kick in at 67 now, which of course started riots in the streets by um, like middle-aged people, like middle-aged white, white people protesting that, no, we need our, we were promised this. So you'd see yeah. conflicts around that. And um, probably the bureaucratic class circling Megan trying to protect themselves and the rise of um, more European style populist movements like, um, like ADF or um, what's Marine, Marine Le Pen's party called um, on the tip of my tongue um, or Brexit where you had like a lot more economic um, pop populist, not economic populist so much as like, um, like nationalist populist parties that are around like really restructuring the, the state to benefit um, the core middle-class population of like in the U S in the U S it probably, it'd be immediately denounced as being white people, but it's people of all classes. Whereas in Europe, it was entirely kind of the white native population of Europe. Yeah. So you'd start yeah. seeing, seeing that. And, um, if it got really bad, probably what you'd see is, um, um, so, so stuff like the women's March in DC, where you had like a million women on the, sh on the street and stuff. Um, yeah. what they don't talk about, about, and what they don't like to acknowledge is, um, that was a self riot. That was like a self March. Almost all those women were like the DC, um, what should we call it? Um, the Washington DC um, bureaucrats themselves, like they're all the bureaucrats or their wives. DC is the uh, PO code, uh, PO code that votes hardest for the Democrats. Like Washington yeah. DC's voter rate is like 93% Democrat. So probably you'd see like um, the equivalent of riots in DC by the bureaucrats or like massive protests or like, like DC side strikes. Yeah, by the bureaucratic class or um, one of their favorite things to do is just to fuck with the general population. So um, you see, see this during the sequesters and the debt, debt ceiling crisis where all suddenly they um, shut down the national parks and it's like, wait, what? Because you, a national park, you're accessing it yourself, but they go out and they put up barricades and say park closed because, oh, we can't hire people to man it. It's like, well, go home, let normal people access it. But they don't want you to do that. They don't want you to be independent of them. So, like, they'll put up barricades and they'll send out people to patrol to stop you from from using the national park so that, meanwhile, of course, all the, uh, like, send all the volunteers and stuff, people who are getting paid nothing to actually be in the national parks home. Meanwhile, of course, the bureaucracy in D.C. is all getting paid during the sequester and stuff so probably what you'd see if um there were like budget threats or they actually starts going through oh what government's departments do we have to close down you start seeing that from like tons of stuff so imagine a dmv strike where just no one could access the dmv for yeah for six months or so or um or all suddenly 
old age security checks stop going out because the department that issues the checks goes on strike to in sympathy with someone else. And you can go through all the government departments, building permits, um, um, all the various things that, that go out of the government is in some way in charge of doing um, maintaining the interstate. You can imagine um, the department of transportation throwing a fit and like shutting down all the road roads that they have toll boxes on. Yeah. On just to like pressure that no, our budget isn't being cut. You'd see, you can imagine lots of stuff like this happening and you can imagine the letter agencies having a little covert war between, between themselves and whoever's trying to cut their budget. So like if you think of Watergate and or um the Russia Gate. Oh. Yeah. If you think of um Watergate or the Russia Gate gate battles where the um where the ledger agencies basically went out of their way to frame to frame elected leaders or um or to implicate elected leaders in their crimes or to spy on them. You imagine that times like a hundred as they try to pressure congressmen whatnot into not affecting their budget, not send, sending them home and stuff. You can imagine the U S government, basically all the like dirty wildcat tricks that, that unions use all the, all the bureaucratic tricks, all everything you've ever seen done in yes minister minister or shows about the working of the bureaucrats state the thick of it um yeah. imagine all those dirty tricks on crack and like blatant as can be um you can imagine uh police forces or like um ones empowered to operate in the u.s just setting up roadblocks to obstruct people people like oh we can't guarantee this so we're sh- shutting it shutting down like this entire work corridor Wait, why? Because yeah, our yeah. our budget has been cut. We can't guarantee safety. Like all these like kind of mob mob tactics. Um won't necessarily see see all of them, but you can imagine a lot of them being employed and have been employed in other governments trying to rescue their budget. Yeah, but is is the federal them. government um if the states and the localities cut their ties with it in a cascading fashion is the federal government capable of maintaining control uh, over this massive landmass without the, uh, without so, so like ultimately not uh but there's like um ultimately what would happen because there's really no way to reinforce control over america once you lose it like it's this massive uncomfortable mess landmass of 340 million people and tons of geography like um like the entire u.s military if you think of like iraq iraq and they couldn't really secure secure iraq and like hold on to it um that's like the equivalent of like maybe california or new york state yeah like so like one state if they went full on and like there was resistance and it went out they could maybe one one, if they're going to go willing to go full occupation, but realistically, once it starts to go, it would just dissolve. The thing is, the process of it it dissolving could be decades. Yeah. Like, um, 
like and say no it can't really hold on but that's not really going to be people's ex- experience what you'd experience is is like oh this is this declining empire that increasingly doesn't make sense and like there are rising nationalist movements that like Texas secessionism also only becomes a party at the state level that's winning like 30% of the vote. And like, you know, that could be a five, 10 year saga of like, um, Oh, Texas secessionism arrives. Oh, it's a funny thing. Oh, it's winning the vote. Oh, it's winning this. Oh, we're invoking like the Hmm. tools Lincoln used to ban the party and arrest all its leadership. And like, we're going to have massive government censorship of, of this movement. And like the former head, it becomes like the guy in Catalonia who tried to separate from Spain where he's in prison and his trial becomes an entire saga, like, like Rittenhouse. And yeah, then yeah. it just rises and rises in po- popularity. And, and there might be, guerrilla movements based around it and it becomes like a 15 year saga and then oh texas does leave because american finances are that crap and they can't really really enforce it but like yeah but like if i just say oh yeah texas will leave like that's not really telling the story your experience of the story is going to be oh this would be a saga and like this would be something that like like becomes entire chapter in the story itself and like, um, if you want to see what America would look like, look at a country with like lots of internal problems that you don't understand. Like, um, hmm. like most Americans don't grasp like um, the state of Georgia and South Ossentia and the story and all that. And like, oh, there are multiple ethnic groups there that all compete, and the government has competing factions that don't align with that, and they dis and they banned this party in the 90s and stuff like um or yugoslavia like like there's this entire model of what what like states in the state of financial and social decay and decline that don't really make sense look like like from yugoslavia to heaven help us not ukraine um to iraq during this civil war to um north ireland and the unifying factor is that like it's fractally complex and like all these dinky legal battles and all these like like low level violence all these financial problems that like are really hard to grasp and would take like an hour to actually break break down and this is why they're willing to kill each other over this pension reform scheme scheme like um yeah like expect something like that. Expect the map t- to have to be like a PDF that's fifty four thousand by fifty four thousand and like micro drawn and like crashes your screen the second you try to try to load it. Like expect that because America's three hundred and forty million people, and as soon as like this very artificial structure from from depending on who you ask, some um, nineteen ninety. 1990- 1945 or 1864 or 1789 as soon as that artificial structure starts sliding there's a lot that can fill the space of 340 million people on half a continent like um like we asked well how many political fashions could be there and it's like 
Well, uh, Medieval Knights Manor House was like 50 people. And like that was a political unit that was able to wage warfare across, you know, go over and campaign from like England to France. Yeah. France with the kings. So, and their politics was that complex. Like, look at a map of, um, like, you look at a map of the Holy Roman Empire with like 1,000 political units and you zoom in, and you can't even see them all. All and it's like, well, each of those have their own political divisions within them and their own power struggles and stuff. And like, who married who could because this stuff. As soon as you have a political unit of this size with this many people and you know more guns than people and yeah. and more complex international relations and more ethnicities than we can count, um, you know things can get very complicated very quickly so that's the probably the big big thing i'd like people to take away about the possibility of u.s civil conflict or stuff that like the shape of it people are like well would it be between the states would it be a separatist movement would it be guerrilla and all this and it's like this is one of the like all like the things that determine the complexity of a conflict is, well, how many people are involved and how much money do they have? Like those are the two factors that drive war is how much money is there? How many bodies do you have? And Oh, how capable are those bodies of fighting? It's like, well, there are more guns than people in the country. Um, There's 340 million people in the country and they're the richest people that have ever existed. Like, like the, like my model is then that would happen and that would happen and that would happen. And it starts to look like chess where it's like, okay, there you're three moves in and there's already, you know, X million permutations that could happen. Yeah. 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 Happen. The, um, like, um, part of the big theoretical, thing that i've been like playing with for why why political units like the u.s fall would fall apart now because um like you think about it the u.s is the richest it's ever been it's the richest people that have ever existed um it's the most peaceful time in a lot of ways that have ever existed if you take the um oh what's his name the guy who's on epstein island um uh Bill Gates? No, no, no. Um, Kevin Spacey? Famous professor. Um, oh, Stephen Pinker. Uh, yeah, Pinker, Pinker. <laughs> his theory that um, that his breakdown of violence in the world and it's like, well, most of that is kind of an artifice of the America, Pax Americana, but also it's true. Like, it's le- more peaceful now than it's ever been if you look at just base murder rates it's been down for a long time and slowly peaking back up. So why now? And the answer is largely that um, the only thing that Americans can't buy, Americans can buy like freedom from almost every problem. The only thing they can't buy is freedom from each other and their political institutions. And as you get richer and richer, like you see people like going on quests 
like decades long sagas to get second passports and stuff. Um, I follow this YouTuber nomad capitalist that he's a consultant for millionaires that all he does is help them set up businesses in foreign countries so they can get a second passport and then, and then either relocate all their, their business there and stop paying taxes to their home country, or maybe even renounce citizenship if they're an American. And that like problem of once you get so so wealthy and so capable all you want to do is exit the corrupt system system that's one half of the equation but the other half of it is is once people get so wealthy they become immensely paranoid about maintaining that wealth so if you look at um so if you look at billionaires obviously they have these incredibly complex schemes and trusts and whatnot. So that no, 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 no matter what happens, this will be secure from lawsuits or this will be secure from that, etc. But for a big chunk of the American lead, how they've done that is by um, becoming part of the, the bureaucratic system and getting an unfireable bureaucracy job that will no matter what feed into a job in um in whatever industry they're regulator academia or no matter what will give them a pension that's fairly guaranteed and it's like this is the most secure you could possibly be so like there's all these people fighting for security from their fellow man and fighting for security from um this political issue because i i think most americans intuitively understand that that all the everything in the system has been vastly overpromised and what they think they might be getting really is isn't there so out of the influential people you see these like weird bizarre scrambles for security um peter thiel conspiring to get citizenship in new zealand and then buying up bunkers there there and you see this from you see this from tons of billionaires where they they'll have like secret compounds in other countries and and one uh, presumably just have somewhere to hide hide their wealth or presumably because no matter what, that would be very hard to take from them in a lawsuit or what, whatever. That um, that as you get wealthier and wealthier, the the problem of the political becomes more and more more pressing, and especially when the political institution that's made America wealthy is decaying so so presently before our eyes. Yeah, yeah. The only the only real exception to this seems to be like the kind of people who who are lusting for glory like um that fellow who went down in a self-made um the self-made submarine to the titanic or, oh. or other figures or these millionaires who will suddenly decide they want to summit all eight tallest mountains including k2 which kills like 20 percent of the people who set foot on it on it that all suddenly you either become like stupidly risk averse to the point where your life becomes this quest for safety or you become like um stupidly glory seeking where you start questing for um or like some danger that doesn't exist in your current life like these this kind of mental illness of wealth without power power that you either feel incredibly powerless or you suddenly feel like like godlike that you have to become yeah. these Lawrence Arabia figures. And as Americans get more wealthy and especially as like it becomes more and more clear that like there isn't 
someone more impressive above them. Like, um, if you're a millionaire in the U.S., there pretty much does not as someone who you should be deferring to or assuming is actually in charge and you should be subservient to. Like, that's incredibly destabilizing in a lot of ways, and especially when everyone can see things are going towards the exit. Like, um, it used to be, once upon a time, um, if you look at, like, just 100, 200 years ago, it used to be the wealthy elite were the stabilizing force in society. Like, it used to be the elite of the British Empire were the people who would fight to the death to maintain it. It used to be that, um, you know, the rich of France would flee to another country and then fight to the death to restore the monarchy. It used to be that the rich Russians were loyal to the Tsar and believed he was appointed by God. Whereas now, like, like partly because there isn't much to admire there, there isn't much coherent there, the wealthier Americans get, they either kind of descend into this madness that wants to tear everything down, which infects all sides of the political spectrum in a lot of ways. Like the Extinction Rebellion stuff is funded by rich people's social signaling that they do, a lot of them do have this apocalyptic idea of the rich libertarians are are dreaming of like a caesar or a second american revolution the populace the wealthy populace are trying to come up with a way to have a caesar type figure like like it's a bizarre scenario where the u.s wealthy and elite are the ones trying to to like overturn the system partially because they feel they've been like shut out of it which is like kind of true there's no other point in history would someone like jeff bezos not have like a domain that was under his own command and titles and like yeah be able to say whatever he wanted about women or whatever like the idea that he would have to go into family court and give up half his stuff because like like some judge from some some female judge from some law school said he had to is like that'd be alien to the Romans or like even the British hundred years ago. But, um, the fact that Americans are in this bizarre system where they're at once infantilized and completely on their, on their own is like really driving a lot of this ideological push. And the fact that the government isn't sustainable in its current form pretty much guarantees that, when it does go, it won't just rearrange itself into a new coherent system the way it did in like, like seventeen eighty nine or like nineteen forty five or even nineteen thirty three or nineteen seventy two. It's it's going to when the U.S. finally does go, a lot of people won't be saying to themselves, "Oh no, how could it end?" They'll be saying, "Finally, finally, it's over." You hmm. know, you have this meme meme um, nothing ever happens and it's happening, it's happening, and Ron Paul's celebrating in, in the meme, and then, of course, it's nothing ever happens, and, and of course, the constant playback between it's so over and we're so back that um, mm-hmm. there's this massive... Mm-hmm. You saw this with the pandemic, that there was this massive desire in the country for, like, the pandemic to actually be as bad as possible, and yeah. and this kind of will to, like, Oh, if we treat it like a real pandemic, it will actually change 
change something in this desire on the part of a big chunk of the left that it that it might actually restructure society and it might actually wipe out the boomers. <laughs> Which of course, like like part of the neuroses of America is that that you know we only got COVID, we didn't get um you know the Spanish flu. But um, hmm. you can see this neurosis building up in society. That's that has to express itself somehow. Yeah. So, with regard to your writing as Cat Girl Kulak, where are you headed, or what, what's the program? Uh, so my blog, um, Anarchonomicon, uh, <laughs> it's a, not a secret. It's a portmanteau of. Um, of uh, the Necronomicon from yeah. um, the writings of H.P. Lovecraft and Anarchist Cookbook. Uh-huh. That um, I really wanted to be kind of a an expansive dive into like the intersection of the political and, vi- and violence and um, hmm. really what makes political order work. Um, I I studied Hobbes in my university degree, and that that bare bones um where does political order come from where does where does it go um how do people create political order of nothing and why do they dissolve that's a huge part of my work um so like obviously there's a portmanteau but it's also it also works in the latin um anarchia without rulers and then without rulers or law and then nomos um Hmm. the law that holds in a place so what law holds when there are no rulers or or laws and kind of that that logic of natural law divorced from like the moral language that has infected a lot of america where a lot of americans will say natural law is really just god's law or like okay to really ascribe a morality to and it's like no that's not how hobbes meant it he meant natural law is like um this game theoretic yeah that holds in the absence of other laws, like a natural behavior. And, and a big part of that is studying it. Obviously I've done deep dives into like motorcycles and in warfare and, um, the possibility of a U.S. intervention to Mexico. Um, um, what one would actually put pieces on what one would actually do if they wanted to prep. So like, I think a lot of American preppers, like have a really distorted view of what like um, political turmoil or the end of the world we know would look like. Yeah. And I tried to do a deep dive into, you know, what you'd actually want to do if you were, um, if you were concerned that you were in Russia in 1916 or you were living in, in Poland in 1938 or, um, or you were living in, and, you know, Germany before the start of the 30 years war, like what would you be, be concerned to do and dug, dug into that. But, um, hmm. a lot of it is also just my personality. So like, um, I saw the movie Blackberry recently and thought it was an excellent movie. So I wrote a 5,000 word review on it. Is it good? And, I'm really interested in that. That's one of my favorite, um, just, uh, plot arcs for a company. Yeah, yeah, no, it's incredible because it's, um, like, a lot of it is more parable than the actual history of the company. 
Yeah. I watched a deep dive with a guy who worked at BlackBerry through all of it at a director level, and he's like, no, that didn't happen that way. No, that person's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. That, But as a like parable, this pastiche of like um, hundreds of companies that have been through this arc, it's incredibly well done. It's incredibly acted, and it, it earned its 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it's oh. a... It's an incredibly well done, like comedy tragic, tragic movie with um, uh, Glenn Howard and Dennis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia plays one of the CEOs, Jim Basili, who had a famous temper, and he plays him perfectly. <laughs> Do you have ties uh, to that but, company being a Canadian? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, if you were in Ontario, like, um. Southwestern Ontario at all during like the 2000s. So like in Toronto, um, London, pretty much anything, anywhere that wasn't like Ottawa or like over more towards Quebec. So like Mm -hmm. if you're in where most English Canadians are from, um, that was like the major defining factor. Like there was a time when it looked like, Oh, we were going to be, you know, the second Silicon Valley. Yeah. Because we had our like multi billion dollar dollar unicorn back when ten billion dollars was a lot of money in two thousand thousand five, two thousand. And and so that was a huge thing. We still have like a lot of good good schools and stuff now, but basically all of them brain drained to the US instantly. Mm. Instantly. Mm. If you if you're a talented programmer, you'd be insane to stay in Canada. Whereas it used to be the opposite. Like um they go into how um, one of the things that brought uh, BlackBerry down was um, Vasily. Um, he was never convicted of it. Um, the BlackBerry was an incredibly secure device. It was end-to-end encrypted at, by default. And one of the things that protected him was all his messages were encrypted and are still hidden on the servers at, at BlackBerry that even oh. they couldn't even sus- subpoena them which is part of the conspiracy theory of BlackBerry that was brought down by the CIA and um, NSA because they didn't want people having default end-to-end encryption of all their messages. Yeah. But um, but it used to be that, um, you know, Jim Basili would be going to places like Google and just sniping all their top talent for like 10 times what they were being paid and using backdated stock options to do it completely illegally but but that was the type of businessman he was that he was cut from like that and got results huh. but um but yeah now canadian tech is kind of a a dead end of like people from foreign countries who only just got into the country or people from the country who like for whatever reason didn't feel they could go to the u.s yeah u.s um canada is a Canada right now is a sad, sad place. But, uh, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's what I actually wanted to talk to you about, but we ended up talking about America. So hopefully I can have you back on to talk about what the heck is going on up in Canada. I can get away with talking about some parts of it, but it seems like it's such a, that's it, teetering in so many different ways on so many different levels that one wonders, uh, uh, if you guys will just surrender to the United States, say, okay, daddy, take us home. I wish, I wish, uh, no, um, 
there's a book, The Skyscraper Curse, which was a theory for the longest time that whenever an economy is about to like go into depression, is almost immediate. It's always marked by them finally building the tallest building, finally breaking their skyscraper record. <laughs> and Toronto just broke its skyscraper records. Oh. Uh, Toronto has had a massive buildup. It, um, if you were in Toronto 10 years ago, it looks like a completely different city. It's really, it looks like, um, it looks like Akira right now. If you look at the Toronto <laughs> skyline, yeah. which like you can even look online and the f- recent photos of the Toronto skyline will be out of date. Like that's how many skyscrapers they put up. Okay. Um, um, out of hope, out of what, uh, just the industry, the, the, because wheels of industry are just so powerful. Is yeah. so insane. Um, oh, so they built a bunch of real estate because there's money to be made in real estate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, the thing is, skyscrapers are an incredibly inefficient way to build real estate, obviously, because it's like you're putting it as far up as possible. It's the most inefficient way to build it. Usually you'd build bungalows, or if you wanted denser, you'd build three-story walk-ups. So if mm-hmm. you're building skyscrapers, it's either... A, there's a lot of really distorted money in there, or B, there's a really, really distorted property market that you can only build skyscrapers for some reason. So um, Toronto is incredibly distorted in that respect. But um, the other thing is, like, houses in Canada, where I am, a small town of 2,000, a house will be a million dollars. Yeah. And... Yeah. And Totally unsustainable. Or is it? Is that perfectly the new it's exactly like california and it was being sustained by all the money being printed yeah but the thing is like um california prices california there are california wages like um there are rich people in california there's hollywood there's yeah there's um silicon valley so at least on paper it makes sense sense in a way if you have supply that restricted and that many rich people they're just gonna outbid each other yeah. but canada canada is vastly poorer than the u.s yet you go just across the st Clair river against across the niagara river uh housing price like into detroit or um upstate new york one side of the river to the other houses drop five hundred thousand dollars really yeah because the Canadian dollar is just so robust? Uh, no, it's because um, Justin Trudeau has brought in, is bringing in 500,000 immigrants a year to prop up the housing market because he knows that if the housing market goes bust, his government's going to fall. Oh, and this was yeah. heavily propped up during the... Um, so we had a... Canada didn't have a housing crash in 2008. Uh, we were still recovering from our previous one in the 90s. Oh. 90s, it was still down. So um, the Canadian housing market has ramped up massively in the past 10, 10, 13 years. And Canada, because Canada's immigration laws are so lax, um, you have like tons of wealthy Chinese CCP apparatus just buying up tons of property to get money out of China. Um, yeah. you have, you have tons of, 
you know, regime apparatus from all around the world doing that. You have um, tons of Indians being brought in to like keep wages low who are buying up houses like crazy around the GTA. Um, Like it's a, basically the country is massively uncompetitive. Um, The average Canadian makes about $20,000 less per year than the average American. Hmm. American America's GDP per capita is about seventy, eighty thousand. Canada's GDP per capita is about like fifty thousand. Okay. And the the average Canadian pays vastly more in housing and cost of living, and our healthcare sucks. So and it's like, healthcare. why are all these I- immigrants coming in? It's because um, the Canadian government is using is using tons of increasingly low skilled immigration. When I was a kid, it used to be. A, fairly hard to get into Canada. Like you had to have multiple degrees. You had to be very skilled. Um, our immigrants, we are brain draining the world. Whereas um, Canada, it's increasingly lower and lower skilled immigration being brought in at increasingly higher and higher numbers to keep the property market propped up. Um, What's the well, end game? Do they have an end game or is this just total short term thinking? Does Trudeau really want to go down in history? Is the end game is that if they can keep this going another three years, Trudeau might be reelected with minority, with a majority government, and then it can crash in the next year, and then he'll still be in for another four years. Why That's does he the, want the job so much that he'd tank the economy to keep it? Oh, because um, Canada's entire country is like, entire elite is one of the most corrupt in the world like all of canada's industries are these um cartels basically all the money in canada because it's such an uncompetitive country is run through cartels so like one company one two companies own basically all the grocery stores in canada um one company owns two companies own all the telecom and like secretly fixed prices and this repeats across every industry in canada everything in canada uh, expect to pay like 30 to 50% more than you pay in the U S um, our milk prices are 50% more. Everything is, <laughs> is like this. The cost of living isn't insane compared to the U S it's because absolutely everything in Canada is cartelized. And, and of course, Quebec, the massive French part of Canada is Corruptors can be and receives massive equalization payments from the federal government. So that's why. So the Liberal Party is basically um, a massive conglomerate of all the cartel interests, all the regions in the country that receive money from the federal government. So Quebec, uh, the poor parts of the East Coast, etc. And um, kind of the urban immigrant poor. Mm-hmm. Poor, that's their... Their demographics. So every everything except middle class Anglo Canada. Yeah. Anglo white Canada. And, but what happens uh, when it tanks and the Liberal Party's in power? Uh well they'd lose the election after after that, but the thing is the longer they're in there, the more um basically the more they can plunder. So like Canadian media, for example. Canadian media is not competitive at all. Canadian media in a free market would be dead, but they receive hundreds of millions of dollars every year in subsidies from the federal government. Every Canadian media outlet, aside from like the three, like um, most conservative wings of it, everything in Canadian media is state funded media. 
and they'll all spin things to benefit Trudeau. Um, you can't watch a debate on Canadian media because half the country country won't be there. They shut out. Yeah, like completely shut out. Um, it's gotten to uh, you know what Trump did, where he just like call out your fake news. Yeah. Uh, that's what um, the conservative leader leader does. Although he's a he was um kind of the chief cross examiner of his party during um his run up to becoming leader of the party. So like, mm-hmm. not only is he like very ruthless towards reporters. He's also an incredibly skilled debater and like cross examiner. So like hmm. reporters will show up. What about this? What about this? And try to gotcha him and he'll gotcha them back. Like he's better at their jobs than they are. Yeah. Yeah. They are. So Canada, what I suspect will happen is, um, is Canada is going to have a mass recession. It might've already started, uh, but it's probably going to have a rest- recession the housing market is unsustainable people are leveraged um up to their eyeballs like um parents take out mortgages against their house to make the down payment for their kids house Mm -hmm. and the kids have the maximum mortgage they can get and like it's become very standard practice to like fraudulently um boost your income so you'll qualify for more mortgage yeah so um like fake statements, um, all these fake additions you could do. And like, this is required to basically get on the property market now. And the immigrant communities are used to this in foreign countries. So like, they're very good at faking their, their paper. And all this was going on. Canadian housing market peaked. Then interest rates went up by 5%, Hmm. you know, 2% to 5%. So right now, um, the structure of Canadian mortgages, um, what happens is the payments have to basically, um, if you have a fixed rate mortgage, you're fixed rate for like three or four years, and then you have to renew. Okay. Renew, at which case you may or may not qualify, or like the um, renewal rate will be much higher. But if you're variable rate, what they the banks have been doing is they've been letting people make interest only payments on their mortgage or like less than interest only payments on their mortgage. So before the rates went up, you're paying like $2,000 on your mortgage and that's like 10% interest. Sorry. That's um, 50% interest, 50% um, uh, principal. Yeah. What they're, they've done is they've let you keep making $2,000 payments on your mortgage, but now that's all interest. And the interest rate might have gone up enough that actually the interest you're accruing each month is three to four thousand dollars on your mortgage. Yeah. You're still only making the two thousand dollar payment, so the interest rate is going up. And the Bank of Canada has cracked down on that. They've said no, you've got to um, basically. There's a period at which even the variable rates have to the variable rates have to re- renew or reset. So those are all going to be going back up and a housing crash like the 2008 housing crash took about two to three years to hit bottom like it was only really at bottom in about 2010 2011 because um everything takes takes months so all of a sudden you can't afford your mortgage okay we'll max out our credit cards to to cover the cost and then make the mortgage payments that takes a few months and then you run out of credit card and then 
that takes a few months and then you run it out of um, payments you can miss, et cetera, or like you try to, to sell it. But um, a lot of people aren't selling their houses right now because um, they still have runway in their, their house. So the entire property market right now is pretty locked up um, in terms of like it basically bottomed out in terms of sales that were happening happening in terms of housing on the market because the prices have stopped going up or have massively declined yet um people haven't been been selling at the lower prices because they don't want to lose money on their houses or they don't yeah. want to be out of water when they sell so the property market's locked up right now and that at some point and there we could be at the start of a recession there's speculation there might be an international recession starting end of this year starting starting at some point there's going to be a downturn coinciding with that and people are already really struggling just from the mortgage payments that have increased that that's going to tighten up and all suddenly you have houses on on the market except canada um in the u.s you can walk away from your mortgage so you're only liable for the house in the u.s so um if your mortgage winds up underwater um, you know, you owe $500,000 on a house that's only worth 400000 you can walk away and wipe out the mortgage in the house and the, house, the bank takes the, um, the house and that's it. In Canada, you're liable for the full amount. So if the bank takes the house, sells the house for $400,000 and if that doesn't cover the $500,000 you owe, you're still liable for the remaining 100000 until you go bankrupt. Okay. So, um, Canada, that was cited as one of the reasons the Canadian housing market is so secure, ah, because no one in Canada would walk away from their house because the only way you can do it is by going bankrupt and losing everything. Yeah. Well, probably what will happen is, um, because 50% of Toronto was not born in Toronto, sorry, not born in Canada, like by population. So that means... Yeah. 50% of Toronto and 50% of a lot of Canada's largest markets have second passports. And oh. a good chunk of them are from somewhere third world. So let's say you're underwater on your, your house. Um, you can't afford to pay off the mortgage. You are, are destined for bankruptcy. Are you going to stick around in Canada and lose everything? Or are you going to leave the keys in the door, hop on a plane, go back to your home country where there's basically no way to enforce to enforce the remainder of that mortgage debt? And, oh, I had several hundred thousand in liquid cash. I had several tens of thousands in liquid cash, or I've been remitting money to my relatives back home. Oh, yeah. You, know, you walk away from the property, and then you move back, and you're still upper class in India. You're still still middle class in Thailand as opposed to being like on the streets in Canada, that's probably going to happen to, to a lot of people. So Canada, like usually you can't have like a massive outflow population drain from a nation. Like um, you look at what happened in Detroit where you had white flight and population decline and all that. And Detroit massively declined. And you saw this across the American, American middle West. Usually you can't have that from a country unless you have a war. 
because, you know, people are pretty locked into their country. That's where they have a right to work. That's where they have passports. Like, um, like you can, like you personally as an American can maybe get to Mexico like fairly easily and start working there. Um, they have, like, you just have to prove like so much in assets and you can do it. But for the vast, vast majority of the world, you're locked into your, your region. And especially in an economic downturn, you're locked into your region because you don't have money to relocate. Canada is one of the few places where you could just have like population decline of the country from outflow of people because it's that, that flooded with um, immigration. The major pop, um, population centers are that um, multi-passport holding. So I suspect Canada could become a, the first nation to turn into Detroit. Oh, Canada. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, it's that mismanaged. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, and there's no political will for somebody to, um, fix this or stop this. Is there competence? Um, so the leader of the people's party of Canada, who's been going after this the longest was almost the leader of the conservative party of Canada. Maxime Bernier is like a hmm. hardcore populist libertarian kind of Mises Institute type. Um, he, it's actually quite funny. He has this thick French accent, which usually screams like left-wing shill in Canada, but he's like the exception of all exceptions. And he's, Hardcore um, wants to restrict immigration, wants to gut the federal government, wants to destroy all the Canadian cartels. And he's been a major populist force for a while. He was arrested during lockdowns, like protesting oh. them. Was the first to um, back the trucker convoy and then has been harassed in his financing and everything else for it. Like, uh, I, I consider him a a great man. He struggles and struggles within Canada because he has this horribly thick accent that, that just immediately turns off a lot of Anglo Canada, but he, yeah. <laughs> he fights a good fight. He believes what he believes. He, he's an ultra marathon runner. Um, like he's run huh. like, um, a hundred kilometers flat out across 24 hours, hours in like winter. Huh. Winter, he, I consider him a great figure, and that's why I'm leading with him. Because yeah. aside from like the four or five percent of the vote he gets, he's largely irrelevant on the Canadian scene. But I'm a great admirer and have been for almost a decade now. But the leader of the federal Conservative Party, um, Pierre Polyev, who um, took over um, the Canadian Conservative Party, was basically like Rhino establishment types for the longest time. They were, um, yeah they were very much like trying to brand themselves as liberal light to be inoffensive as can be be like trying to be, Oh, if we're that, but slightly this way in moderate mathematically, you know, that wins the votes and then we can get um, all the donor money as well. Hmm. But that made them profoundly unpopular. And then during the trucker convoy, Pierre Polyev, who had always been kind of a firebrand of the party, you know, famously was more keen to hold Justin Trudeau's feet to the fire than the leader of his own party, which caused a great deal of tension. Hmm. Um, he endorsed the truckers immediately when they got into Canada and was almost, and basically in the midst of the three week trucker convoy, there was this like massive power struggle knife fight within the conservative party yeah. of um, 
conservative establishment leadership trying to kick him and um, the populists out of the party while the populists tried to defeat conservative wing. And because of the massive influence the truckers had within the um, organizational wing of the party, like the true believers, um, the people who would volunteer, et cetera, um, Pierre Polyev and his faction, along with Candace Bergen, not to be confused with the actress, um, won. And he was pretty much coronated as leader of, of the federal conservative parties. Now, he's in a lot of ways very similar to, similar enough to Maxime Bernier. I wouldn't say very similar, but he. Um, He's a very nerdy guy. He sounds like Ben Shapiro. You'd almost think he was a clone of Ben Shapiro. Um, has this very debate, nasally debater voice, um, glasses, yeah, etc. But he's um, very economically literate. Like he was, he became very famous for his YouTube channel where he just posted videos of himself interrogating and like, like sounding off on the floors of the House of the Commons, but um, giving speeches about um the bank of Canada's rate and how this was screwing ordinary Canadians and like a lot of this economic populist type stuff that it became very apparent. He was heavily criticized for this, but it became very apparent even though, you know, he skirted around the edges of like saying so that he had obviously had read a significant amount of some Austrian economics and he kept it very boomer friendly of, and this is how they're screwing you. And this is how they're hurting ordinary Canadians like you, you and would like brand it that way. Kind of like this bizarre cross between huh. Ben Shapiro and Milton Friedman. But, um, but he was very, very good, good at that. And there's a reason to believe that he has like some very, distinctive economic theories, but the problem is, um, so basically the golden goose in Canada, the thing that keeps the entire thing running, the reason the country has not fallen apart as it is, is oil. Uh, hmm. Canada has a massive amount of oil in the Alberta, um, oils, oil sands that have basically funded the rest of the country. Um, the average Albertan has sent like $10,000 to Ottawa, just in equalization payments oh, that go okay. immediately to Quebec. So that's like oh. for every man, woman, child. So like you could, you could have sent a kid to university in Canada for what, for what the average family of four has given to Quebec over. What does Quebec do with year. this? Like create pastries, cultural um, artifacts. Oh, they fund government bureaucrats who do nothing. Oh, okay. Oh, that's unfortunate. And like give away like, um, you know, daycare type stuff that like is subpar yeah. and whatnot. But like people are convinced they're, they're La Belle province. They're, um, you know, pressing forth with the like good social society. You know, Quebec famously has protests of its students demanding free tuition. Yeah. Where they'll like ride across the city of, of Montreal and have massive protests because tuition rates went up by like $200 from $800 to $1,000 a year Yeah, for university, which is like insane to anyone in America where you guys pay like $20,000 per semester. Yeah. Semester. But Quebec does that because they're, 
they believe that, oh, we're progressing towards this, this socialist dream. And of course, it's all funded by Alberta oil money. Everything in Canada is funded by Alberta oil money by and large. The numbers don't make sense without it. Which is horrifying because, of course, Canada is like an outpost of the green movement that wants to stop the oil movement. So at the same time, they're alert. The entire system is dependent on it for money. They're trying to mm-hmm. torpedo it. So there's a reason to believe that Pierre Polyev got in charge. He would have some levers to pull to like assist the oil industry, but largely Canada, like your problems with um, your judiciary down there, like running everything, is multiplied by by a thousand in Canada. Like our judiciary isn't even elected. It's um, appointed mm-hmm. by the old judiciary. So it's this massive like blight upon the, on the country that only exists via appointment. And like, is this massive power base of the um, university educated elite and like yeah. their most, I- at their most ideological and, yeah. and the provinces themselves block um pipelines and other things and canada right in the constitution because our constitution was written in 1982 um which we have constitutional documents before that the original founding document of canada is the british north american act from like the 1860s mm-hmm. but um the canadian constitution has written into it rights for for native groups and and the treaties have been read by the Various treaties with the various tribes have been read by the um, courts as binding superior to the Constitution because it's a nation-to-nation relationship. It's it's a treaty, which, of course, the courts wouldn't do that with any other foreign policy issue. But um, so basically, at the provincial level, level, the the judiciary level and the local municipal level with regards to native tribes, which might also be international movements funded by, um, by NGOs and whatnot who are hiring lawyers for them. There's 10,000 different ways to block pipelines, development, everything else. So, so like that would be like the one switch that you could pull. That's like, like, okay, put the economy overdrive, try to say save it and basically there's entire nest of barbed wire stopping you from pulling pulling that yeah. switch um polyev has said a lot about the housing market market and like he very clearly understands why it's messed up however he's he shied away from saying what he'd do about it aside from like oh make developers approve stuff because everything's a third rail in Canada. You can't talk about restricting immigration or you'll lose key voters in key districts. You can't talk about, um, about um, lowering the price of real estate through restricting bank of Canada through restricting loans or whatnot, or else you're sending off the boomers who are counting on their houses to fund their retirements. And yeah. like um, basically Canada is in the same problem with, as the U S with everything being over promised, but it's, um, it's like tied into the core economics of the country where everything is over promise. Everyone's going to be able to bring their cousins into the country. No one's house is ever going to drop in value. Um, 
no cartel in business is ever going to lose their monopoly. Uh, Quebec is never going to lose their equalization payments, except we aren't a world superpower. Our dollar isn't the reserve currency of the world. It's like like France, yeah. you know, all these protests over restructuring its pensions and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, so yeah. I, it doesn't sound like there's the political will. Uh, until things just completely bottom out, and then I can't see Canada revolting. I don't know what it would do. Uh, so the most likely outcome, I'd say, is um, a the property market crashes, so boomers like probably losing their retirement plans, yeah, plans because their houses are retirement plans. Uh, probably a massive exodus of um, people leaving the country because they're as soon as the unemployment's so high and as soon as cost of living doesn't make sense, people people leave like um already yeah. it's become like uh you can go on YouTube videos and whatnot and see people talking about, yeah, I just have another year, then I'll have Canadian citizenship, I'll have my passport, then I can leave and never come back. The, their goal is to get citizenship and never live in the country again. What what's the benefit for that? Uh, the Canadian passport has like access to 120 countries via oh. visa free. So like, if you have a Canadian passport, you can show up at at the vast majority of countries in the world, just wave it and go right in. Yeah. And, and most countries also have like very generous um, terms for like if you want to work in the country or um, if you have a have a business you want to relocate there, like Canada. There are 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong, which you'd think, oh, that's an insane amount. But no, they're all ethnic Chinese. <laughs> oh, no. So there are Hong Kongers or other ethnic Chinese who came to Canada at some point, stayed long enough to get Canadian citizenship or like um, had some legacy like British interchange thing where they could just like spend like two years. Like over a quarter of a million? Over a quarter million, 1%. Almost one percent of all Canadians in the world, zero five percent of all Canadians in the world, are ethnic Chinese in Hong Kong who can't vote because they don't have residency in Canada. Uh, like um, the way Canada works is, we don't have um, like if American goes abroad and is living abroad, they they can send in an American broad ballot to vote. Yeah, we can elections. Canada, um, you have to actually be living in Canada to vote. So you have to have a residency and say, oh, yes, I have this address here to vote. There isn't any, like, seats for foreign, foreign voters. Mm -hmm. um, but they all have a right to come to Canada at any time and settle here, like, without filling out paperwork. Yeah. But if you, if you have that train... show up... If the immigrants leave, the boomers lose their retirement... What happens to the cartels? They they maintain their stranglehold on on industry, but they have to lower their prices, right? They can't just starve the people that they're swindling. Oh, oh, they don't have to lower their prices. If you have a stranglehold on prices, you just keep it up, and you know if they can't afford it, they go down to lower tier goods that you also overprice. Okay. You know, you go from President's Choice to No Name Macaroni, and you're still paying thirty cents extra. Okay, but why would can, can so Canadians are just going to swallow this? Um, no, what's probably going to happen is um, so Canada, so much of the um, money transfers and everything are set up to keep the country stable. 
So um, equalization payments and whatnot. In 1994, sorry, 1995, uh, the Quebec referendum on independence uh, ended with a no vote that was 50.6% against independence and 49.44 independence. Okay. So like Canada became within less than 1% of um, separating forever. The, the big thing that equalization payments and all this balance of everything has done has been to keep Quebec in and keep the Laurentian elite in charge. Like the um, Toronto, Montreal, Quebec City, Ottawa set of like rich cartelizers who profit off the country and plunder it. Um, basically, Canada has a bad enough downturn. Um, money stopped flowing. Real, real consequences have to happen. The Indians leave and stop providing cheap labor. Um, none, the, the subcontinental Indians, the native Indians will be here forever, um, filling our prisons and driving our crime rates. But, um, the, the basically Canada will probably break apart. Like, um, we've already, we already saw with lockdowns that, that English Canada will revolt if they're asked to like sacrifice any, any more than they already have. Yeah. And we're already seeing like wide disgust that, you know, you might have a conflict in Canada where like French versus, versus English fights that everyone thought was over in like 1998. But, um, Hmm. you know, money starts sucking out of the country and things could go pretty wild pretty quickly, which hmm. like we haven't had a global recession since 2008 and that like, we're definitely more than due for one and very strong case to be made that all the financial shenanigans that have been done to prevent it during the lockdowns and whatnot are going to make it vastly worse when it does occur. And that's certainly hmm. the case in like her housing market should have crashed in in March 2020 when lockdowns were brought in. Like it should have collapsed in value. There should have been a down downturn, um, and that should have been unpleasant. But everyone just survived. Instead, the floodgates were opened on um, Bank of Canada money, and mm-hmm. in the midst of an era when no one was working. And in the midst of an era when everyone was um, moving out of the city and like, like making housing choices away from expensive real estate, yeah, real estate prices exploded to their highest level. So, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe Trudeau can somehow keep this afloat another three years, but that might not even save him because Pierre Polyev is polling about ten points higher than him. Oh, that's hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Um, That doesn't necessarily do as much as you should think because um, you know how um, Donald Trump won in 2016 despite Hillary winning the popular vote? Yeah. And, like, the left in the U.S. whines about it? In Canada, it's the opposite. Um, The conservatives won the popular 
vote the last two elections. Hmm. But the conserv- the liberals have had um, 30% more seats than them because they're regionally concentrated in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's possible Trudeau squeaks out another one, but most likely... Most likely you can't keep this housing market afloat another 12 months even. And then it's just downhill. And we, we see how dark the Canadian lost decade is going to be. The OECD has predicted that Canada will be the worst performing of the G8 over the next, next decade plus. Yeah. And, and nothing I've seen from any commentator has suggested Otherwise, which is absolutely insane when you think that Canada is bringing like over 1% of the population every year. Like, um, (laughs) like you're bringing 1% of the population every year, yet you're growing less than anywhere else. Um, Canada's already in a, um, per capita recession. Mm -hmm. So the, um, economy is actually shrinking per person in the economy. Okay. Like the growth rate, so like GDP per capita is actually declining in Canada. The only reason the actual like total economy of Canada is growing is because the number of people are growing that much. They're bringing in that many. Okay. So it's like, um, so it's like how, yeah, it's a, that's a dark, dark statistic that I didn't even think could happen. <laughs> Where it's like you're you're pouring in more rats into a box, eating less and less feed. Yeah. Well, hmm. Maybe someone up there is running the experiment on purpose and getting some good human data out of it. Uh, honestly, I a good crisis in the U.S. or just a good downturn in Canada falls apart. Like, um. Like I talked about how the U.S. was unstable because um, one of the unstable destabilizing factors about the U.S. is how many guns there are there. But um, Canada, people think it's like this disarmed population, like it's Europe, and it's not. Uh, Canada, both in an absolute number and in a per capita term, Canada has more guns than Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Oh, so like in absolute numbers and per person. Per person, and we're right next to the U.S. So if anyone wants guns, like yeah. it, that's a very trivial smuggling run to make. Make so if there's ever any tension in the country that really starts cracking off, like there's nothing that would really keep the federal government in charge. And unlike the U.S., we don't have um, the masses of the masses of militarized police or. Um, our military, we have, I think it was 40,000 regular forces and 60,000 reserves in the entire country. Yeah. Well, would, would uh, Canada call in the U.S.? Like, are there any kind of treaties on that level to quell a rebellion or from the England or anything like that? Um. I mean, it's possible, but like that'd be a massive international incident. Um, 
probably what would happen thinking aloud is like CIA would come in and do like black ops behind the scenes and like um they create a f- volunteer f- tier force of like mercenaries they're actually being paid by the US or like people who were given like surprise honorable discharges from the US that don't align with their their contracts at all plus bonuses bonuses that also only show up as mercenaries but that's <laughs> like the country doesn't have the will to do that yeah. <laughs> like um, because unlike the US where it, you guys put down a civil war and had like um the violent suppression of a major rebellion and had it like written to all your founding documents that no, we can like conscript hundreds of thousands of people and like butcher half a million people to like maintain the union. Canada is the exact opposite. Uh, Canada after the um, 1995 independence referendum, um, our Supreme court, our government passed the clarity act and our Supreme court signed off on it. That um, basically laid out that all the provinces have a complete right to secession. They just have to have a referendum with like a clear question and a few other things. Hmm. Other things. So like, whereas you guys have like a mandate to a president to like launch the nukes before he lets uh, a state go. And like, it would actually be like some political wrangling to get rid of one, one, which like, wouldn't actually launch the nukes. It'd be a death sentence on the president, but theoretically that's how the America is structured that that's supposed to happen. Yeah. Uh, Canada it's, Oh no, you just have to fill the right paperwork and cross the right T's and have a referendum. Hmm. So like Canada, like if it starts to slip, it'll just fall apart and it's designed to fall apart. And it's never really whole to begin with. You look at Canada, like the Canadian provinces, it's easier to trade in Canada with another country than it is to trade within Canada. Oh. Canada's provinces do not have free trade agreements with each other. Okay. And federal government is not empowered to actually regularize trade between the provinces. So, like, um, if you go to Ontario and go to buy Canadian wine, you'll buy wine from Niagara region and like a few other spots around the great lakes. You cannot buy Quebec wine in Ontario. You go to Quebec, same story. You can't buy Ontario wine. You go to BC, you can't buy Quebec or Ontario wine. You got to buy BC wine. Huh. This is true of like everything in Canada. Um, every individual province in Canada trades vastly more with the state across the border through NAFTA that does with the provinces on either side of it. So like, it's a country that will fall apart. That's made to fall apart and was never really together to begin with. Okay. And do you think those provinces can uh, survive on their own? Uh, Well, I mean like any political unit can survive on its own if it's willing to like govern well. Yeah. Like, Singapore proved this. Singapore was the least viable country in the world. The leak one you was just like, we'll actually govern correctly. And now it's the richest country in the world. Ah, uh, 
Yeah. Like um, massive racial divisions, a geography that sucks surrounded by more powerful neighbors who align with like the racial aspects that are opposed to the governing Chinese minority um, at a strategic location that like they by rights should have been dominated by a world power. And it's just like, oh, he governed correctly. He made it friendly to markets and, and enforced discipline. And now it's one of the richest countries in the world. Any political unit you could probably do that with. It's just the question of like, can you make that that happen? Can you ideologically let someone competent govern? Which is like, hmm. like in most places, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm not convinced in any province in Canada the answer would be yes, but like, it's possible. Yeah. Well, you know, you brought a lot of black pills to me today, but none of them are of your own making. So, there's uh, that. You see, I consider this all a white pill, because... Oh. Yes, um, that, that poor decisions will not continuously be made. Uh. Like, like, if I said, no, 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 America's going to be 100% stable, um, it's just going to be woker and woker from now on, you know... 25 years from now, it'll be Republicans telling you that the bio are the real tra- transphobes and tax rates will be 98%. And like, I don't know. There, were, What was the meme online? Uh, Ken looks at Barbie under it and he's under, um, under dramatic lighting. No, Barbie, when Frank said it was the end of history, that was a lament. He's mourning the great men. Hmm. And it's, it's like, uh, the world will have a crisis, but it'll, we'll get to be part of history again. We won't be in this bizarre yeah. Yeah. between, between phase, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There'll be hazards, but there'll be opportunity. I doubt the nukes will fly, but maybe, who knows? Oh, no. But people yeah. survive that, you know. There's that girl in that vault in Fukushima, in um, Hiroshima. Went on, had a ton of kids, was happy. Okay, yeah. Wow. There will be survivors. Well, th- your your articles are absolutely fascinating. Uh, your your blog is or Substack is in Nart. Economicon, and I'll link that in the description. Your your tw- I love your Twitter. You're always coming up with really spicy takes that are always I'm always learning things. Um, yeah, so- uh, go to Cat Girl Kulak on Twitter and just hit the link if you want to see my blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else afoot uh, that uh, you want to plug? Uh, check out the Bailey podcast where um, my friends and I discuss lots of different things. I've been meaning to come up with my own podcast, but they they do consistently good stuff and I'm constantly blown away by somehow my, my friends and I will go to conventions or whatnot and won't have put out anything in, in months and months. And yet like some AI researcher from Google or some like, like incredibly credentialed person will listen to our podcast Uh and remember it from like 10 months ago. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. What fun. Well, thanks a lot for your afternoon or morning and uh, for all the writing that you do and uh, showing up on my show. Let me pick your brain. 
No problem at all. It was a pleasure. <laughs>